0: There is no better place. It's time to talk. The only way to get into doing Cork is to be (laughs) on (laughs) to Neil Prenderville. Fair play. Talk to Neil Prenderville.
1: That's that's a
2: Cork
3: threat
0: at this (laughs) stage, I think. The Neil Prenderville Show on Red FM. I just love Cork people. Conversation that matters.
3: Big Mulcahy on the Neil Prendival Show. A couple of days left. Neil is returning at uh, 9 o'clock on Monday morning. Let's look at the morning papers. Murphy celebrated Oscar nod with cake. Killian Murphy learned of his Oscar nomination while home in Cork and celebrated the news with some tea and cake. Read last evening, actually, of somebody who met Killian Murphy out walking his dog uh, in the uh, Bell and Temple area. So there you go. He was in Cork. Uh, anyway, he said he was in Cork himself. Yesterday was announced Murphy had been nominated for the Best Actor for his performance as J. Robert Oppenheimer, the theoretical physicist. Uh, described as the father of the atomic bomb in Christopher Nolan's epic biopic uh, Oppenheimer, nominated alongside Bradley Cooper for Maestro, Colman Domingo for Rustin, Paul Giamatti, what an actor, for The Holdovers, and Jeffrey Wright for American Fiction. I'd say he's got a very, very good chance. Well done to Killian Murphy making the mirror as well. Killian's uh, up for an Oscar at last. Killian Murphy's former teacher said the actor deserved an Oscar years ago after he was nominated for his first academy award the star got the best actor nod for his portrayal of j robert oppenheimer the jewish scientist who developed the atomic bomb during world war ii and um killian's english teacher william wall said yesterday we feel that he deserved an oscar years ago uh after the golden globe's best actor win earlier this month uh he told um a national radio station. The last time I heard from him, he said it was mad over there, which I presume he meant America. After the Golden Globes, imagine what the after Oscar party is going to be like. And uh, also making the Irish Times today. We were just having a cup of tea. Then my mam brought out the cake. Uh, Patrick Frayne in a Q and A with Killian uh, Murphy. If you want to check out. This morning's Irish Times. Ian Bailey is making many of the papers again today. Sophie, suspect, cremated, says the Irish star. No one to mourn him. Uh, Bailey's lonely secret funeral. Uh, no moaners as the cremation kept secret. John Kieran's reporting in the star. Ian Bailey was cremated at a private family ceremony in Cork yesterday with nobody in attendance. The body of the chief suspect in the Sophie Tuscan de Plantier murder was released to his sister Kay Reynolds, his next of kin, yesterday morning. He was taken by a local undertaker. Uh, I believe it was an out of county uh, undertaker. I opened the correction on that uh, just to maintain the secrecy, I imagine, for a private cremation service. His sister, who lives in England, stayed away, did not attend. And Frank Bailey solicitor, sorry, Ian Bailey solicitor Frank Buttermer, confirmed that his client's funeral had taken place and that the family would not be making any further statement on the matter. His sister had decided to keep the cremation a secret and it's understood there were no mourners in attendance. Mr Bailey's wishes were to die and be laid to rest in West Cork where he lived for over 30 years. Uh, It's not now known what's going to be done with his ashes or if they're to be scattered or buried around the Skull area. And according to the Irish Daily Star today, it's understood the family decided not to bury him and put up a headstone in case it was desecrated. Uh, Varadkar, Sinn Féin adding to trauma of refugees. The uh, Mail's front page today. Uh, The Taoiseach says rival parties' shifting stance on Ukrainians is causing unnecessary anxiety. Craig Hughes, the political editor of the Mail, is reporting that the Taoiseach has accused Sinn Féin of adding to the trauma of Ukrainian refugees as the party continues to change its position on migration. Uh, Senior Sinn Féin figures have recently indicated three different stances on whether Ukrainians should stay in the country Uh, when the EU-wide temporary protection order expires in March 2025. Under that order, Ukrainians receive special refugee status, which automatically entitles them to work. They also get special rates of entitlement, such as social welfare and medical cards. And Leo Varadkar said, Sinn Féin is causing unnecessary anxiety for Ukrainians in Ireland. Ukraine is still at war. Uh, At the moment, rules are set at EU level. Uh, So all 27 states uh, must comply and tow that line. Ukrainian payments cut in February, says the Mirror. Payments for Ukrainian refugees are expected to be cut to thirty-eight euro eighty from early February. Uh, the Irish Mirror understands the Cabinet decided before Christmas it would change rules for newly arriving refugees. This will include cutting weekly welfare payments from €220 a week to 3880 Uh, Additional changes will limit the length of time a person can spend in state-provided accommodation to 90 days. Social Protection Minister Heather Humphreys will discuss the legislation to reduce payments for newly arriving Ukrainian refugees at the Euroctus Social Protection Committee today. Uh, I note the word newly arriving, so does that mean that everyone is here stays on the higher rate? I don't know. And do they stay on the rate until February 2024? That I don't know either. Um, Domestic abuse rise has the uh, Echoes main headline on the front page. Krahur O'Leon reporting that a Cork-based domestic abuse support service has witnessed a sharp increase in the number of people seeking its aid. Deborah O'Flynn, manager of OSS Cork on the uh, South Main Street, said the number of people presenting to its office seeking to avail of a range of supports, including the accompaniment of a victim to a court to seek an order had increased significantly last year and it comes as figures presented at this week's meeting of the joint county uh, uh, the Cork County Joint Policing Committee by Superintendent Michael Corbett sh- uh, showed there was a 16% increase in the number of reports of domestic abuse in the Cork North Division 11% in Cork City Division 7% in Cork West and no baseline figures were disclosed uh, also on the Echoes front page a uh, very sad story uh, by Anna Lachlan Two hospitals have apologised for the fa- for failings in care to a young Cork boy, whose brain tumour grew and went undetected for over 12 years. Jack Doran of Carrigaline, County Cork, was only 15 when he died two days after the 10 centimetre brain tumour was finally discovered after he was brought to hospital suffering from seizures. The apologies from both hospitals, which acknowledged that an opportunity was earlier missed to identify low-grade cells on Jack's brain were read to the court as his parents settled a high court action over his death. Outside the four courts, his devastated parents said their love for Jack is to infinity and beyond, reflecting the autistic boy's love of the movie Toy Story. How sad. Uh, On future certain for Krispy Kreme, after council decision... They're not long here, but Amy uh, Amy Power reports in the Echo that the future of Crispy Kreme or Crispy Cream on Cork's North Main Street, uh, Cork's Main Street, I beg your pardon, that's Patrick Street, has been thrown into uncertainty following a planning decision. The U.S. donut chain opened at number 42 Patrick Street only last April to much fanfare. Seven months later, Crispy Creme Ireland Limited lodged a planning application with Cork City Council seeking planning permission and retention planning permission for retention of change of use from previous retail to cafe with internal seating for sale of food and drinks for consumption within and off the premises as well as seeking retention of the existing shopfront and signage. A description of the plan said that the proposed development would also include all associated internal ancillary works. However, planners in Cork City Council have refused planning permission. In its reasoning, City Council said the existing cafe use is contrary to certain objectives of the City Development Plan relating to the prime retail function of the City Centre. Uh, I imagine that some big corporation as they are would have had uh, all those I's dotted and T's crossed before they opened uh, but it would seem not. Cash and carry-on says the Mirror. Today the government may define essential goods and services that must accept cash payments later this year announcing the government had passed his access to cash bill. Finance Minister Michael McGrath said he had feared the transformation to a more cashless society would have seen many people being excluded from day to day life Uh, Minister McGrath said the ability to spend cash is as important as accessing it the national payment strategy is currently out to public consultation but Minister McGrath said I recognise that for businesses handling cash comes at a cost but also digital payments will probably cost in terms of merchant fees uh, and so on we have to make policy decisions he said, I would env- envisage that we will define certain essential goods and services where a right to pay with cash is appropriate, but we have made no decisions on any specific uh, goods or services or outlet type that would be subject to that. And you may have heard it on the news, but, uh, oh, there's one more before, yeah, let's go to this one. Vital Resting Place, you may have heard on the news, records made from ashes. Now if you're cremated, your ashes can now go into a vinyl record letting the dead communicate from beyond the grave, as it were, because it can be recorded on. Incinerated remains are pressed into a 7 or 12 inch disc so the bereaved can take their loved ones for a spin on the turntable, or should that be urn table? says The Sun today. Audio recordings from the deceased can also be incorporated in a new deal offered by Wessex Vale Crematorium in Southampton. However, it's far from dead cheap costing €1,742 for a single record. I wonder what record you can press onto that if you didn't want your voice. Uh, the Sun have some suggestions. Um, Bruce Springsteen, I'm on fire. Great Balls of Fire, Jerry Lee Lewis. The Heat Is On, Len Frey. Hot Stuff, Donna Summer. Relight My Fire, Take That. Ashes to Ashes, David Bowie. Don't Fear the Reaper by the Blue Oyster Cult and You Spin Me Right Right Round by what band? Dead or Alive. Final story, uh, a boffin, which is a scientist, said put salt in tea. Now, I might try this later, but it uh, doesn't uh, appeal right now anyway. Warm milk, also advised for your perfect brew. Now, we did cover tea in my last uh, venture onto the programme uh, and uh, as to the correct order in which to place uh, your ingredients, your hot water, your tea bag, uh, uh, your milk, your sugar, sugar, etc., into the tea. But chemist Dr. Michelle Frankel said scientifically it helps to reduce its bitterness. Salt, this is. She's also urging drinkers to warm the milk up before putting it in the cup to reduce the risk of curdling. The tips are among the unusual ideas featured in her book The Chemistry of Tea. Published by the Royal Society of Chemistry. Um, this is, she's actually in, uh, in in America, but said, I learned new things about what's in my cup and how to make the very best cup of tea. But a pinch of salt, apparently, is her key element. Warming up the milk would be number two. Let us know what you think of that. You can call us on 0818 with whatever's on your mind, uh, 104106 and 0868104106 by SMS text or by WhatsApp. 20 past nine to our phone lines next.
4: Call Neil now. 0818
0: 104 106. The Neil Prenderville
3: Show on Red FM. Good morning from the Neil Prenderville Show at 9.24am. Now, we gave a bit of time last week and a lot of time this week to the Mayfield area, Ennismore, uh change of use for the Old Dominican Centre, etc. And I think it's the kind of time we brought it to a natural end and drew a line under it. However, we are also tracking uh, spec Reports that, that there is interest in other buildings. And now I hasten to add this is not in the Mayfield area. Uh, but elsewhere in the Greater Cork area, which we will uh, keep an eye on. Uh, one in the Bellancolic area, for example. Uh, we're keeping eye on other things. But as regards uh, bringing a conclusion to NS Moore, I feel it's only fair, uh, having just missed the the Post yesterday, uh, we had to go for news at 12 o'clock. Joe had just come out of his uh, fact-finding gathering, sent me a text, didn't, didn't even have time to read all of it, Joe, but happy to welcome you back to the air this morning to bring some clarity, finally, to uh, what's going on or what isn't going on.
5: Yeah, Mick, uh, at the outset, committee, thank you uh, in particular uh, for the fantastic coverage and the balanced coverage you've given this um, issue, um, and, and clarity and fairness. Um, look, we spoke last Thursday on this and there was a question going around last Thursday and there was a question being asked of me as a local councillor. Uh, there was a rumour out there there was between 80 and 100 unvetted males on their way to be accommodated in Ellis I went away and I asked that question of the management team, who, would, who I knew would have the answer, and I asked Cork City Council because they'd be in touch with the department and so on. And I was told in no uncertain terms that that was not the case. Um, there was no uh, evidence of that Plan being put in place, so I went back and I went back to you with that information last yes. Thursday. And look, between last Thursday and today, uh, nothing has changed. Nobody has been accommodated in any shape or form in Ennis Moore, as we said, because there were no plans to do so at any point. Now, in between last Thursday and today, there's been a couple of, you know, uh, there's been a lot of rhetoric and there's been a lot of agitation and there's been a lot of. Issues raised, and a lot of people got involved, and so on, and a large I gathering think, as well, big, Joe. Yeah, a big large gathering. Yeah, people coming from all over to um, into to, into our beautiful uh, community here in Mayfield. And look, I, I really, I was my priority here are the local residents and trying to protect our local community and having this kind of negative. Um, I suppose, issue uh, out in front of uh, the whole world to see, the whole country to see. And uh, look, especially when there was little, it was quite baseless, to be honest with you. There was never anybody coming here. And I was staying on top of it just to make sure that there were no plans in place to, and and the management, the people who make the decision were scratching their heads and they said to me, listen, Joe, we have no idea where these rumours are coming from. They were liaising with Cork City Council Housing Department trying to find out what was going on, who went back to the department, and we got, eventually got clarity from the department yesterday, who gave us confirmation in writing that there were no plans, that building was not being considered for any accommodation of any sort. And uh, eight months ago, uh, the management of NS Moore, and they were quite open and clear with that, and I did say that, did uh, indicate on the online portal that they would be open to housing um, e- women and children from Ukraine in the small. Whenever the building was ready, at whatever stage, but that was it. And it, it just that was eight months ago, and nothing happened since then. Last Friday, the department sent an email to the management. Uh, of the facility asking them would it be interested in taking um, well I won't say unvetted but international protection and they got an immediate response on that saying a flat no from the management, that we're not interested or willing to do that. And as well as that, the building simply wasn't ready for to be populated, and it isn't. So what's happening as we're sitting here now, Mick, as you say quite, uh, quite rightly, let's draw the line under that. The, the builders have gone back in there. They've gone in there to work on that building and bring it back to its original splendour. And in the coming weeks and months, as soon as that building is ready for use of whatever and they don't know themselves what they're going to do with it. Uh, Hopefully some sort of a community slant and I'll be keeping in constant contact with them and hopefully we can avail of it as a community asset uh, in the coming months and years because it is a beautiful place, you know, as you well know.
3: Yeah, look, uh, on on the timeline of things, it it, it was incumbent on you to come on the show and, and give your clarity on Thursday, which you did. No unvetted mails. But the developers themselves seem to have taken that extra step yesterday, as we heard from Councillor Ken O'Flynn, they can now categorically affirm uh, that they've yeah. re- reconsidered any thoughts of putting Ukrainians in there. Also,
5: Yep. Yeah. Oh yeah. There's, there's, there's no. Well, as well as that, it's not ready. I mean, if they rise at the gate today, they would be allowed in because the builders on site, I suppose. And but look, there there are no Ukrainians going in there. There's no. There was never any unvetted mails going in there in, in any shape or form. Um, and look, obviously, but, but once a rumor starts. Uh, sometimes it kind of—I won't say it gathers legs, but uh, but look by the same token, um, it does it does frighten people, and it does put the fear uh, into people and so on. And you know, it's it's something that we really have to keep on top of in our local communities in this day and age. These people are fleeing a war-torn country. We have 148. Ukrainian refugees um, from where I'm sitting now, in, in, on the middle of my road, in two facilities at the moment, and we don't even, we really don't even know they're there, to be honest with you. They're, they're, some of them are actually even working in the area, and uh, the children are going to local schools, and um, they're not a burden to society at all really here, uh, to be quite frank and honest with you. Yeah, we had another similar so,
3: case yesterday where much the same uh, was said. They're integrated into the community, working, school going, uh, once again, you'd hardly know yeah. they were there.
5: Exactly, exactly, exactly. And... God knows how long they will be here because you know uh, I don't know wh- what the timeline is in terms of them returning to the Ukraine and to their country and when the war is over as soon as well, whenever that finishes and that's an international issue but by the same token in terms of our local community here um, they have I suppose they have moved into large buildings which one was was completely derelict and had to be re, 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 revamped I suppose to accommodate them and it's now a beautiful building brought back to life and they're in there and um, they're populating the schools and they're contributing to the local economy. Yeah, Joe, there's, there's been a number of
3: owners of possibly suitable properties uh, over the last week or two weeks or so who have withdrawn from the consultation process and made their local yeah. communities aware uh, that they are not considering any influx of anybody into those buildings. Now, I'm just asking a rhetorical question. I don't expect a definitive answer. Would that be because uh, of certain I won't say arson, certain coincidental outbreaks of fire uh, at other buildings around the country and um, maybe the the owners are pulling back and saying, you know something, I'm not going to risk it. I'm not going to risk any any pressure or harm uh, to my family or to my building. I'm just disengaging from the process.
5: I'm sure that thought did cross their heads. I'm sure that thought did cross their minds, making fairness. Um, there is always that threat, of course. Uh, but then again, that's criminal damage, and that's an issue for the Gardaí to to address. And, and the Gardaí, in fairness, there they, they would all be live investigations with the Gardaí um, in various locations across the country. And I hope that whoever um, the, 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 the perpetrators of those criminal acts... Are, will be will be caught and brought to task.
3: Okay, so what the what the owners um and and developers of uh, Inishmore or the old Dominican building there uh are now saying is that uh absolutely 100% no to to unvetted males, now it's absolutely no uh, to essentially putting any migrants in there uh, and yeah. uh, I believe and you can correct me if I'm wrong uh, they have said and maybe told you that if there's any changes at all they will be very upfront and public about it uh, to, right. quell, to quell any uh, malaise or distrust that may be in the community, they will communicate effectively
5: and That is the assurance that I've been given yeah.
3: Okay. Is 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 that a victory then for Jason and his crew?
5: Well, I don't know what the vict- what his victory would be over because there was never anything was there was never anything going to happen there. To be honest with you. Yeah. Um. It like it's not as if the owners uh, or the 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 management in Ennis Moore had plans to do something and then decided because of the protests they changed their plans. They haven't changed their plans because there weren't any plans.
3: Okay, and they 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 will communicate. I I think lack of communication is the cause of much of what's going on here between both sides, between the powers that be and the the owners and developers that be. Um, Yeah. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm also getting indications that... uh, uh, developers are using people such as yourself, you know, local councillors and public representatives, uh, yeah. t- to go in nice and discreetly into the community and say, look, this isn't happening or this is happening, rather than have it come on the media and maybe create more, more uncertainty. Uh, and then the media gets involved, of course, uh, when, yeah. you know, when the protesters get involved, when the buses come in. Uh, and once again, I, I harken back to something I said yesterday. When buses are coming in from outside areas, uh, that really, really signals that there is a greater agenda, um, to me anyway.
5: Yeah, yeah, but there were, there were no buses yesterday. I mean, there was talks of bus loads of of people in the area. There were bus loads of buses in the area, but they were all collecting the kids up in going. <laughs> <you know? laughs>
3: there, was, there was buses came down for the for the protest, wasn't
5: there? Oh, there was. Yeah, there was bus loads of people. Um, that was information. Yeah, that I somebody rang me up with the information that they were coming up from. Um, they were coming in from I don't know where. I honestly make I I'd be if I knew where people were coming from. I tell you, but I don't know.
3: Yeah. Well, Joe, it's been a hot potato, and can I thank yourself um, as you thank this program? Can I thank yourself and Councillor Ken O'Flynn? Uh, you know, for taking it on the chin, looking looking for the information, being very open yeah. and honest with us on the air, and and really doing what you're elected to do, serving your community.
5: Mick, thank you very much. And I can assure you, if, I, if, I, if there are changes to the plans for Ennismore, um you'll be the first to hear.
3: All right. Joe Cavanaugh, former Lord Mayor and uh, Fine Gael Councillor in Cork County Council. Thank you very much at 25 to 10.
0: Call Neil now. 0818104106. The Neil Prendiville Show on Red FM.
3: Good morning from the Neil Prendiville Show. And good morning and welcome to Owen Coyne on line two. Good morning, Owen.
0: Good morning, Mick.
3: Now, you're a Cork dad. So, I am, yeah. Celebrating a very happy anniversary in the last week or so. Happy 10th anniversary. Not such a happy occasion, though, uh, that led you to stop gambling 10 years ago. 10 years and one week ago now. Uh, That's right, Jeff. A huge amount of money uh, spent after getting hooked betting on dogs and not really knowing you had a problem, perhaps being for a while in denial uh, but some very stark facts here. Can we get back to the just the dogs first? You were working at a dog track. Did that give you inside information, or did that just give you the impetus to start gambling?
6: I suppose more the impetus than the, uh, the information, uh, Mick. You know, it's just I suppose as as um, as a, a team going to the local greyhound track and just being into it. I suppose you think back there, go back what twenty years now, and I suppose. Gambling wasn't really given the the status as an addiction as it is now. You know what I mean. So I never really saw it as being a massive problem. Um, so like, and it wasn't an, a, a big problem at the start. You know what I mean. It kind of crept into my life, I suppose, throughout my teens and maybe towards my as I, as I headed towards my twenties when I left school and heading for college and. Then into the working world, you know, and the, the real world. I suppose uh, that's kind of when it when it kind of um, as well just kind of I suppose it, it, it was it was dictating too much of my life.
3: Yeah, but uh, you, we're, you know. we're talking about uh, maybe the the dawn or the birth of smartphones, but not essentially the very handy gambling apps. They weren't really. Developed at that stage were they?
6: No, not not at not at the start. No, not not back twenty years ago. I think towards the end of my gambling background, two thousand and twelve, two thousand and thirteen. Even even you could still bet online through a, through a laptop or a PC back in, say two thousand and eight, nine, and ten, where, where I would have been gambling a, bit, a good bit. Um, so like it, it was mainly in the shops, but I I do remember distinctly going back two thousand and thirteen around the summer of 2013, I was betting an awful lot more. I was living in the UK at the time. I was betting an awful lot more online and I just felt as though uh, it was an unmanageable amount of time you know that I was spending. Uh, either, either gambling or I was thinking about gambling or yeah. thinking about how I was going to gamble or whatever it was. It just it just became very consuming.
3: Yeah, I, I'm interested in how it did become that consuming because obviously there are certain factors in play. You were moving between divorced parents' homes. That means they probably didn't know uh, the truth about your addiction. You were able to hide it a bit better. Kicking off by spending all of your weekly wage at the greyhound track probably your own business. But then you started to realise when betting on horses and football at college that you were spending more time at the bookies than you were at lectures.
6: Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, I was hiding it from everybody. Do you know what I mean? Like, I mean, I was I was the master of deception. Like, it didn't matter whether it was, you know... Um you know, living with 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 ten people inside inside my house, or whether I was living alone, or whether it didn't matter who. Like you know, I was the master of like deceiving everybody, like my friends, my family, whoever it was. Uh, just like, and, and the thing about it is, like, I, I was like a high functioning type of person. Like you know what I mean? I was able, like you know, put a smile on my face after losing a couple of hundred euro in the bookies, like, and pretend like oh everything is hunky dory. Um, but like yeah like it 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 just i suppose kind of kind of crept in kind of crept in that that bit too much and i suppose it was more of an an internal thing really as to like you know it was just i i suppose i didn't really you know i wasn't i wasn't thinking long term you know when it came to college i was thinking like you know, the, the first and foremost uh, plan in my head was to make sure I had, you know, whether it was a 10 or or, or or 20 quid to have a bet or, or, or you know, it didn't re- it Like, you know, long-term thinking around college or whatever it was, what, wasn't that play back then, you know?
3: Yeah. I remember Robin Williams saying about cocaine addiction uh, is, is that cocaine instantly makes you feel like a better man, but the first thing a better man wants is more cocaine. Where's, where's the hook for gambling addiction, addi- or at least... Where did you get hooked at it? Was it the kind of a dopamine rush? Was it the ease yeah. with which you could drop a hundred or two hundred quid? Or was it the belief that um, this is my life and I'm going to be very wealthy? Was so what? Was it the money or the rush?
6: Uh, I think it's a bit of everything. I, I, I think predominantly what brings you back is the rush. I mean, like you couldn't have been the money when you're losing all the time, or not losing all the time, but you like. I mean, you know, any anyone with, with a bit of common sense will tell you, right? I'm at this what. Seven or eight years, and I'm not making money, and not only that, I'm losing money. So, like, like predominantly for every gambler, it is the rush, like you know that that, that you're that you're looking to get, and it doesn't matter like how much money. I saw like there was I did an article there recently, and it and it it over. It, I I think they they put in that I had lost like an, an astronomical amount of money. That was like I think that was incorrect anyway.
3: Okay, but let's get back to the...
6: But, like, I, it, it's, definitely, it's definitely the dopamine hit. And, yeah. like, as you mentioned there, what Robin Williams said about cocaine, it's the exact same thing. Like, gambling does the exact same thing to your brain as cocaine or alcohol or um, tobacco or whatever it is, whatever type of drug it is. It makes you want to come back for more. It releases the chemicals in your brain that says, I love this and I want more of this and uh, I think that's kind of what what it was and and that's what kept me going and it's what keeps so many people going now and like you mentioned online like online has amplified tenfold like in the last ten years probably a hundredfold in the last ten years and like that's that's, I suppose, why I kind of talk about gambling is because I see the harm that it does to so many people. And by sharing my story um, very openly, a lot of people would confide in me as to you know their own struggles. And it's just, it's, it's in in the ten years that I've spoken out about, like or that I've stopped gambling. Um, you know, it's just. The amount of people that are that are hooked into gambling, or uh, the amount of people in trouble due to gambling, is just it, it it's risen so much.
3: Okay, let's look at the human impact before we look at uh, why you're now uh, an advocate for not an advocate for gambling, but an advocate for helping people overcome gambling. The the human impact here though. And especially as an uh, an addict, there is going to be collateral damage. I don't mean that as a pun. You actually lost the collateral. Uh, of the deposit of your house for you and your girlfriend, uh, Jen.
6: Yeah, so it was a rental deposit, like um, when we when we were when we were moving house in London. You know what I mean? And and uh, um, like I just gambled away my share of what we had saved. Um, you know, and like it was that was the realization. That, I, I thought it
3: was fifty grand because it says, no. it says here no, you, no. you lost your entire house deposit. No,
6: no, it wasn't. But like that is the reality for some people. It was it was it was it was about a thousand euro. Um, it was a rental deposit, but like back then, it might as well have been ten, twenty, or thirty, a yeah. hundred grand because that that was all the money I had at the time. Do you know what I mean? So it's all relative. Um, and you like, received a six
3: thousand euro bonus from University College, uh, yeah. and blew the whole package on a trip to Vegas at the blackjack
7: table.
6: Yeah, so that was um, that was my college grant, my first year. Got it in a lump sum. And went off to Las Vegas and, uh, yeah, thought, of, thought it was the best thing in the world. And until I was coming out of the New York, New York casino about, you know, after losing about a thousand euro in the space of, I don't know, four or five, six hours, um, you know. Uh, but, but yeah, like going back to collateral damage, like it, it, it like gambling has not just for me, but for everybody, like you have affected others as well who have no control over your gambling and like you know like for for loved ones they they may have no idea that 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 someone like me is is gambling away be it the rent for the month or the deposit for a mortgage you know so like that when you talk about collateral damage you're talking about other people's lives who are you know i suppose oblivious Uh, to the extent of of what's going on. Okay.
3: Tell me when you realised you had a problem. Tell me about the lowest point and tell me about when you resolved to change.
6: Yeah, so I suppose I I realised after, you know, I suppose when 2013, August 2013, um, I was living in London. I had like... um, a couple of overdrafts that I wasn't planning on paying back. I, I, I was due to pay, um, you know, the deposit on a new flat for, for a rental deposit on a new flat. And um, I basically had just bottomed out. I had no money. And I was like, what am I going to do? I can't continue to, to keep living in this cycle where I was waking up every morning thinking about my first bet, going to bed that night thinking about how much I had won or lost and then thinking about the next day again. So I I suppose it was like, this needs to stop or, you know, something something bad's going to happen here. And um, I, I eventually just, just, I suppose, raised my hands, raised the white flag, had a chat with my girlfriend, told her the situation, and I just said, I have a problem. And I suppose that was when I admitted it both to myself and when I admitted it to someone else, and um, I, 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 I suppose I, I, I gambled in for another couple of weeks sporadically until I eventually uh, sought professional help. Okay, and
3: the professional help came from GamCare. Uh, yep. That's that's a new one on me. I haven't heard of that one before. But they so offered Gam-
6: you. GamCare is a charity that that um, uh, operates in the UK only. Um, oh, okay. And they provide one-to-one counselling, and they also provide uh, group therapy for people who are, who are trying to stop um, gambling. It's not really a service that exists here in Ireland. Um, you know, we we do have very limited services here in Ireland uh, for for people who are looking to to stop or to stop gambling. So I was very lucky that I was living in the UK at the time that I was able to avail of this service. It was completely free of charge. Um, I went to uh, 12 sessions of one-to-one therapy I, I gave up my last bet was on the 15th of January 2014 and thankfully up to now I, I haven't had a bet since then
3: Okay, it was, as I said at the start, happy anniversary what, What's your advice now? What, what do you get out of telling your story? I know it's part of the, the healing and cleansing process but what's your advice to people uh, who may be stuck in the throes of gambling and and as to what assistance might be out there, maybe?
6: I suppose just, like, you know, there's a a huge stigma around it, I suppose, because it's seen like it's a behavioural addiction rather than a substance addiction. So, like, people do feel very stigmatised and say, like, why can't I stop gambling? Like, it's not as if I'm putting, you know... Cocaine up my nose, or I'm drinking alcohol until I fall down. You know, so like that—that—that stigmatizes it for people because you know sometimes the um, the the kickback that you get is like, why can't you just stop? And like, it's not as simple as that. It's—it's you know, it's it's a like it's a real addiction. And for people who are looking to stop, they just need to just like, as I said, hold the hands up and say, I have a problem here. Speak to someone that you feel you can confide in. Someone that's not—it's going to be maybe non-judgmental. And on top of that, like seek professional advice. You know, I, reckon, I recommend that to anybody who, who, who speaks to me. Is you know because like all I really do is just signpost people to to um, to professional um, advice. You know what I mean? Because like that's where you're going to you know get into to the nooks and crannies of, 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 of why you're gambling and, and all of that and all of that kind of stuff, you know.
3: Well, it's very big heart of you, of you to come on because you don't have a book to sell, as they say. Uh, you're just coming not on. Yet as it, anyway, and, uh, not yet anyway. Not yet. As an advocate for seeking help, your uh, uh, long-standing partner, Jen, stood by you through the difficult times?
6: Yeah, yeah, yeah she's been great. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I think, like, the of nature of gambling is that, I suppose... Um, you know, it, it can be hard for for loved ones to, to to trust, but I suppose Jenny didn't really have have a huge like knowledge of of the amount I was gam- the amount of time I was spending gambling. That's mainly down to I suppose the secretive nature of it, and that's that's um, you see that's quite common for people who who are um, who are stuck in this addiction. You know, and
3: like those who may be addicted to alcohol, would would you think or would you know that you are one episode away from falling?
6: I don't want to go back there anyway Mick you know what I mean I don't want to contemplate the fact of having another bet I don't like I you know I'm not I'm not you know it's not not a situation I want to put myself in Um, I probably have the tools to to cope with with something like that and that's down to I suppose uh, working through you know my gambling through therapy over the last 10 years um it's due to i suppose the family support network that i've set up and, and i suppose it down to the fact that I'm so open and honest about um about it that you know i think like if if that was to happen and and hopefully it never will that um you know it 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 can be it can be look. A step along, a bump on the road, and I think that's that. That's for any addiction, or you know, anybody that that does fall off the wagon, so to speak. That you know, you're not starting back at zero. You're just hitting a bump on the road, and. Um and, and like that bump in the road hopefully will 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 make you stronger for for the next time any temptation might come around but thankfully um i i i i i've yet to hit a bump in the road and i hope to have you know a clear a clear path ahead of me um you know so that that's that's kind of that's kind of um where I am in 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 my journey, you know what I mean, and and I suppose advocating for it, you know, I do. I, I advocate for people to come out and speak out about it as well. But you know, I do advocate as well for tougher legislation around gambling and uh, you know tougher uh, restrictions around how gambling companies operate. I believe they behave recklessly at times, um, you know, and I'm not just saying that anecdotally. It's it's it's, it's something that. It has been highlighted, you know, both here in the UK and in the UK over the last ten or so years. Like you know, so um, I think that's something that our legislators really need to, to to prioritise. You know, it can't be sole responsibility on on, on the person who is consuming the product. There has to be some responsibility taken by the operators and also by our legislators.
3: All right. Well said, Owen Coyne. Thank you very much for coming on the Neil Pendergast show this morning. Thanks, Nick. Thanks. Cheers. And if you're affected by any of that conversation and you would like to seek some personal professional help, uh, Gamblers Anonymous, though based in Dublin, do have uh, a core contact number. It's a mobile number, 87 Oh eight seven two eight five nine five five two.
0: 87 The Neil Prenderville Show on Red FM. Conversation that matters.
3: Two and a half minutes to ten o'clock. The immigration issue continues to generate many hundreds of texts to the programme. And yours are welcome on 0868104106. If the Ukrainians were in such danger, why were they going back for Christmas? Paid for the Irish. Uh, a lot of them are working. Paid for themselves, I suppose. Hi Mick, I'm listening into the show and it's great to be able to have a debate on the matter of immigration without being immediately shut down for a change. From listening and watching the majority of the protests around the country over the last 12 months or more, people have many concerns. You hear of so many NGOs, that's non-governmental organizations, and government themselves, TDs, saying that the country isn't full. If that's the case, why are they countless hotels, Bs, and hostels closed? to accommodate these people. Furthermore, regarding the modular homes in man, why is it that these people were housed in own-door accommodation in less than 18 months, when there are Irish people waiting 10 to 15 years on housing lists? I do think Ireland is a welcoming country and that we are a generous people. If the government hadn't abandoned the Irish people and its services, uh, the sentiment may be a little different. I would like to remain anonymous thank you uh, hi Mick that uh, chap from Mahon I'm not sure if his name was James I think uh, stated on air that certain people have no business at another protest outside their area should he have a say as to what's happening in Mayfield then Mick we have 14,000 homeless in Ireland and 4,000 of them are kids why should we house others when we can't house our own this thing of fleeing war is bull and you know it Thousands went uh, home for the first week of December and came back on the fifth of January. Where was the war then? Algeria, Morocco, the UK, and Georgia have no wars either. Uh, My brother's been placed on a housing list for the past fifteen years, says another texter. He had a workplace accident while being self-employed thirteen years ago, which put him out of work. He's been living in a uh, one-room bedsit ever since. If the owner dies or sells. My brother is homeless. Uh, Now the keys for 11 social homes were given out recently. Only one was Irish. There are plenty of hotels in Ukraine with empty rooms. Why doesn't the government rent those out for the Ukrainians? How do the Spanish have plenty of rooms for tourists while we're booked solid? Um, Mick, you said there were 17,000 Ukrainians working in Ireland at the moment. What are the other 100,000 Ukrainians doing? Uh, And just to clarify that, uh, a note from the production team that so far, 102,339 Ukrainian citizens have been granted temporary protection in Ireland. Many are women of course, many are not working many are children going to school It's 10 o'clock now
0: The Neil Prenderville Show on Red FM Conversation that Matters
3: Okay, and before we get back to the business of today, I want to wish uh, a very, very happy birthday to Pat Dunn from Glanmire. Very happy 60th birthday today, Pat, from all of your family who love you very much. Uh, And this request is coming in, especially from your niece, Lily Sue. Uh, Good friend of Neil's, actually, and Neil and all the team uh, at Red M. he says himself, have been very good to him. So thanks for that, Pat, uh, down throughout the years. Uh, Happy birthday, Pat, the big Six O. Uh, a big roundy one and all of your friends and family and all of us here on the Neil Prennival Show want to wish you all the best happy birthday Pat now then back to the uh, business of the programme and to uh, Tony O'Reilly um Uh, Sorry, he's just getting parked up. Uh, We had a last-minute venue change for Tony. Uh, Just wait for him to come on the line. Read a couple of texts while I'm waiting. Uh, Hi, Mick. My name is Shannon. I think it's very unfair what's going on in this country. I'm an Irish mother with three kids, aged four, three and one. They've been living in homeless accommodation in the Commons Hotel for the last four months. Uh, But they uh, come into our country and are given everything. They're housed and I can't even get a house for my kids. I've been on the housing list for four and a half years. I haven't even had an offer. Uh, Why are the Ukrainians allowed to travel back to the Ukraine whenever it suits them? Also, apparently, there are now 130 Syrians being bussed into Red Barn on top of the hundreds of Ukrainians. I give up. Uh, said Kira. Kira, uh, we've had a few messages on that actually on the Syrians in Redbarn, and a few messages of concern about the uh, old Gale School, the former Gale School building uh, in Cool Row in Ballincollig. But uh, one guarantee is we'll stay across all of the developments because we're well knitted in the community, and we get these texts in. And when we go exploring, we often uh, uncover stories as well. But we're always happy to keep everybody who listens to the Neil Prendiville show up to date. Now. Uh, on the line, on line one, is Tony O'Reilly. Good morning, Tony. Morning, Michael, things? How are you? Great. Now, we spoke before and we spoke at length on uh, the Neil Prenderville show. And what we're talking about is uh, is a very serious topic. And I don't mean to make light of it, but uh, it's uh, the one staggering element about your story is that you managed to dip into 1.75 million euro in funds. Uh, and, you know, you stole it. You'll admit yourself... And uh, tell us the story from the start for those who may not of uh, who may not have heard of you before, and tell us who was Tony Ten.
8: So a quick snapshot of the story, I suppose. You started off with a one-pound bet from s twenty-four, which is relatively old in comparison to what we see nowadays. And I suppose the addiction developed over a number of years. Um, but I suppose it really escalated when I went online, and I ended up with an online account and started gambling on credit. And I got myself in huge amounts of debt and it got so bad I at one stage like I you know, I had to um I had to wait for a horse to pay for a wedding and then it kind of escalated into a bigger and bigger addiction to the point where I was so desperate to try gambling my way out but it. I done the unthinkable when I started stealing from my employer on post. And I suppose that snowball very quickly um started off with thousands and then it ended up with tens of thousands and then as you said yourself, it ended up with one five, 1.75 million. I um, eventually uh, got discovered, I went into treatment of the Coomber in the Thai and um, obviously I had to suffer the consequence for what I'd done and rightly so and I ended up being sentenced to four years in prison but want to spend it for theft and frauds by an account and while there I suppose I reinvented myself and became an addiction counsellor and I suppose ever since I've been trying to help and support and create awareness okay. around um, people struggling with addiction.
3: Was was Tony O'Reilly always Tony 10? Was Tony 10 always Tony O'Reilly? Or did you manage to separate the characters in your mind, in your head, in your actions?
8: Um, I suppose Tony 10 was the username and the account. And I suppose when the gam- what really drove me to gambling was underlying issues, like the feelings of not being good enough and uh, not being good at anything, sec- insecurities. And gambling kind of was an escape for me. So I suppose uh, Tony O'Reilly was there for a while and then I suppose Tony- when Tony 10 took over it would have been... Um, to alleviate the underlying symptoms and then gambling was a way for me to do that and then it just developed into a huge problem where I needed more of the behaviour to um, kind of deal with what was going on in my life and then it just escalated to something that totally went out of control.
3: Okay, how much money do you think flowed through your hands uh, in, in total? Because you would have been gambling winnings as well as the money you took. So, so some estimates put it close to 10 million.
8: Yeah, the turnover of the account was ten and a half million. I think oh. It was wins of nine point two million, um, so it was always that chasing element, always trying to get back to zero. My total online losses were was one point four one seven million, and then I would have lost about four hundred thousand euro in the physical bookies and casinos as well.
3: Unbelievable! That's a great chat up line, though, isn't it? I won nine point two million okay. gambling.
8: I don't know about that, but see, see, some people pick up on that figure, but it was never. I never won. I never had that in one go. The most I ever won in the calendar year was forty six euro. And that might have been the same year I probably got four or five different loans for the gamut. So even that, that's why I'm always mindful of that number I can sensationalise it. But the big figure would be the the, um, the amount of money I lost in total with it.
3: Yeah, I, I, I went into a bar in Cork one evening. I can I can safely say, I think, uh, because it's now demolished, it was the Sexton Bar. And I was doing a radio programme where it was, it was a quiz. And I was invited down just for a soft drink on the way home or whatever and in there there was maybe 50, 60 people and they were all glued to an English third division match because somebody was making book in there uh, and this was an expert odds were changing as goals were scored and this is like an FA Cup final with guys shouting at the television but it's an English third division match
8: um, does, does betting fuel sports interest? I think so. Like I would have no interest watching Oval and Scunthorpe on a Tuesday night unless I had a bet on it. That I, you know, I, I have to learn how to watch sport again. Um, it does because it creates a, an interest in it. It creates um, an investment in it, and you can gamble on over 160 markets in any match now. Whether it's a, whether it there's a certain VAR decision or whether someone scores with their backside or whatever, you can gamble on absolutely everything. Whereas years ago, when I started, it was only win, a loss, or a draw, or maybe a first goal score. So I think and because of the ease of access being able to place a bet and the normalisation of gambling in sport it's never been easier to place a bet and people um, you know and, and, and I suppose lots of people do it with recreation do it as entertainment that's fine but for an ever increasing growing number of people it becomes a huge problem where it starts impacting lots of areas in their life
3: and at, at your level of rolling you were a high roller so if, if, if you were gambling this much in Vegas you'd be probably given uh, the free presidential suite every time you arrived would you collected by limo
8: yeah, it's the same with the bookies in Ireland. Like to bring it to round the world events, like you know, I was a VIP. I was brought to the Budweiser Irish Derby and, the, and to the Europa League final. Dublin. Now I, I was very much not looking for these bonuses because of actually the nature of how I was getting the money. But people will be um, celebrated and they'll be brought to different events as a VIP. Like to become a VIP in any of the bookmakers, you have to be the biggest loser. You have to lose tens of thousands a year. But if you start winning money, they'll close your accounts. Or they'll restrict your account. So it's kind of win-win for them, because if they're bringing to the a big event, you're going to be spending more money, you're gambling more money, and you're made to feel special about it. But it's um, hopefully that will be looked at in the regulation on the line.
3: Okay, can you tell us about the wedding and the uh, the detail around the uh, the, the four grand, or the ten grand, and the six grand, and, and what happened?
8: Well, basically, I suppose I, I got in so much debt I, I needed a, a horse rest to win to pay for the wedding because I got in so much debt and I when, even when I was over there I gambled while I was over there and lost the money I had saved and uh, there's a horse called Archerise ridden by Frankie De that I needed to um, to win to be able to pay the balance of the wedding um, so you can imagine that it tarnished um, that particular day in my life as it did many other days including the birth of my daughter including the... Um, the um, the various job kind of promotions I got and post as well.
3: So how how did you figure out in the end? Did the wedding take place? Your eighty guests were there.
8: The wedding took place. The the um, I got married, and but it, but gambling was at the centre of everything for, of, for that part of my life. And um, again, as I said, it just got bigger and bigger as we went along.
3: Okay, but recognising you had a problem, and this is kind of this is the common thread that runs runs through when you first of all recognise, admit to yourself that there is a problem, only then can you deal with it. So I suppose along that line, tell me about your last bet and why it was your last bet.
8: My last bet was in Carrick, Fergus, in 2nd of July 2011. It was a horse called Badea in the 150 in Beverly And it was my last bet because I, I got discovered in a hotel room minutes away from taking my own life because of my mental torment I was in because of my gambling addiction. And I suppose... That last bet was a big significance. I haven't placed a bet since in nearly thirteen years. And um yeah, that's where it got to, as it did as it does with many other people, suicidal ideation, that rock bottom place. Um, because you don't see the problem, you just see the problem as how can I get myself out is how can I gamble away with how can I pick a bet that's gonna fix everything, how can I get money to gamble? So like you don't see the problem as the problem until you hit that rock bottom place and then you have to accept it's a problem and you can never do it again and, and that can be difficult for some people but luckily I've managed to because maybe I walk in the area, I've managed to um, navigate recovery fairly well so far so touch wood that continues
3: Okay, it was verifiably your last bet but do you think it's in the psyche uh, of of the mentality of a gambler uh, that, you know, one more bet uh, but it's a continuing one last bet
8: it is, I suppose. It's it's the same with any addiction. Like I suppose with the psyche of me, that was the last bit. But that's not to say that I couldn't go back. I've, I've worked with many people over the years who have gone, I'm sure I'll just have one more small bit. I'm sure I'll be grand. I won't go back to the level I went back to. In the same, place, same way, as someone with alcohol addiction might decide they might have one more drink. I'm sure they won't go back to the to the top shelf. They'll just have drink, pints or whatever. And it ends up going back to where it was. Um, but for me it was kind of it was always trying to, about trying to get back to zero trying to win the money back and get it back I created. Yeah, okay.
3: oh by the way Tony I just realised that because we're we're ramble on and I go off on tangents uh, I never brought you to the conclusion of the wedding story Frankie de Torre won that day
8: Frankie de Tori won and I, and I got out of the situation but then it just started. the whole process started again because I still had to try fix the financial situation and not get me the confidence I oh, I just do this again I'll be fine so you, you have this kind of um, gambler's fallacy or call of distortion that you know the next bet you'll, you'll win again and then you'll win again and fix all your financial situations but you only end up creating more and more in the long term because even if I had got back to zero I would have started the whole process again
3: Okay, you were sentenced to four years Tony for stealing 1.75 million, was that from on post? Yeah. It, it leads me to this question do most gamblers who take money consider it borrowing not stealing?
8: In that moment, you'll rationalise anything. Same as many people will rationalise their decisions in various situations, whether it's getting into a car after a few drinks and saying, it's only, I'm only a mile up the road, I'll just get into the car. People will rationalise decisions in certain situations, stressful situations. And I rationalise it as, um, as borrowing. But looking back now, I was stealing money and I deserved um, the consequences for what I'd done. I'm, I'm
3: I'm trying to picture you know when the, when the family and the friends started to notice whatever intervention came your way would you have been kind of distracted disconnected um, never at peace fidgety uh, furtive looking around the place always on the phone um, I'm I'm trying to imagine what you were like uh, at the very end of your gambling
8: Yeah, it's very hard. To, to, it's very hard to spot someone with a gambling problem. So I would have been very distracted. You said I would have been um very rarely present in, in certain situations like family events or even with friends. Friends will always say they notice a change in my persona, but they didn't put it down to gambling. They thought it might have been just kind of maybe marital problems or stress, work stress or even um newborn baby or whatever. Like but people see a change but they don't put it down to gambling. It's only afterwards people say that oh, that's where that's why maybe um you were on your phone the whole time or disappearing or um so like Yeah, it's very difficult to spot. But I think if we're the more awareness we can get out there, so people um, can have in in their minds that it may be a gambling problem. If someone is totally focused on their phone or watching, as you said, um, third division football um, with with a high interest or getting very agitated watching it, there are signs there. But it is very difficult, but it's not impossible.
3: Okay, so the the book Tony Ten came about uh, very kindly. Of course, this is a not-for-profit for -for you book. Uh, All your earnings from this book are going to Coenvira. Uh, and to the aged cancer support centre in Carlo, I assume that's a that's a personal choice. But tell me about Tunvera.
8: Tunvera well, was where I went for treatment. It was I was there for three months, um, and uh, it saved my life. It, it was I was able to get away from the limelight of it. But while I was there, I I um, I tried to make positive changes in my life, and I knew I had the prison sentence coming. But it it really got me. Um, I felt non judged in there, and I felt that empathy, and I and I was able to. Um, I was really able to turn my life around from that and um, I was lucky enough to work in their, um, their transitional house in Gardner Street in Dublin and that's where the kind of money from the book went towards. It was towards um, you know, like putting more services there for the residents there who would be homeless men to come through addiction and then the other one was obviously um, to the cancer charity that I looked after my mum and her last sure. week before she died.
3: Okay. How was the stretch inside?
8: Sorry? How was it inside? Um, probably as you can expect but I navigated I think treatment helped me to um, get my head around it and I was able to kind of um, you know just about get through it and um, I suppose I um, engaged with the schools I stayed away from negativity and um, you know I, I managed to uh, navigate it and come out to far side Alright I, I,
3: I, know, I know you've got a lecture to go to and I'm keeping you longer than I, I should have. I'm, I'm, I'm
8: very mindful of that because I get set up yeah okay uh,
3: yeah. Uh, I I I I let you go thanks thanks a million uh, the, the book is Tony Ten by the way uh, and the, you know the proceeds are going to a good cause thank you Tony I'll just finish up on my own thank you
8: thanks many thank you. all the
3: best thanks bye bye um, the book is called Tony Ten the astonishing story of the postman who gambled ten million euro and lost it all it's by Declan Lynch and Tony O'Reilly we just spoke to Tony there one of the interesting parts actually is uh, Declan um, apparently showed the cover of the book to Tony's partner uh, and Tony's partner asked could you not have put took the money instead of stole the money but Tony uh, said no you can't butter it up this is what I did this is who I was it's not who I really am Uh, but that's what I was and I have to live with that and he continues to live with it he's an inspiration really his lectures are always well attended his heart's very much in the right place Uh, he's paid his debt uh, to society, and he is um, uh, uh, really helping a lot of people. Uh, of course, Coon Vera aren't the only ones who are helping a, a lot of people as well. Uh, we also have Tabor and Mick Devine's been listening to the uh, conversation. Mick, your clinical Div- uh, director at Tabor. Good morning to you. Good morning, Mick. Is it Tabor now? Um, Tabor Lodge gone? Is is Tabor the correct name now? No.
1: Well, we're called Tabor Group, and we have two units: one is Tabor Lodge unit, okay. and the other is Tabor Fellowship unit.
3: Okay. What What has the uptake been like uh, in demand for your services? Is there a decrease? Is there an increase?
1: Increase. Uh, very much an increase, making demand for services. I think it's especially since COVID. There's hardly a day where there's a bed empty here now. Um, good, good demand. Yeah, a lot of people coming forward looking for help with addiction, including gambling addiction.
3: Okay, a staggering ten thousand euro every minute is gambled in Ireland, adding up to five billion. Wow! Well, uh, and you know, it's, it's a huge amount. Non problem gambling is, isn't isn't bad. It's it's when it does take hold of people is, is when you you get involved. Okay. I I know a guy who puts two euros every week on a, on a football. Uh, what do they call them? Accumulator. And and has an interest across the weekend in all of the games, and and often wins a hundred quid or something, but doesn't put more than two or three euro down, and that's fine. And we're not we're not bashing the gambling industry here, uh, but problem gambling is an ever growing concern here in Ireland.
1: Yes, definitely. Yes, that's for sure.
3: So, despite the unsettling yes, numbers of problem it. problem gamblers in Ireland, um, the Irish government spend on problem gambling treatment and prevention. Um is isn't so large.
1: Mm. Yes, yes, gambling treatment is not adequately funded and the 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 regulation of the gambling industry that, 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 that is planned by government will will intrude a levy we hope uh, that will contribute to toward the costs of um you know, helping people who have developed problems due to gambling. So we hope that's going to be the case. Um, but we we would have about five percent of our client group will have gambling problems. As uh, may, maybe it's a standalone gambling problem, or maybe the gambling problem is part of a of a a poly addiction um, um, problem Mick, where there might be uh, uh, drugs and alcohol involved in the addiction, and gambling as part of the profile.
3: Okay, and you must also see differing levels of the problem coming your way. By that I mean you might have. Um You know, you might not be a pleasure gambler, but you might have a mild problem. You might have a serious problem or you might have a critical problem.
1: Yeah. Okay. We 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 distinguish between mild, moderate, and severe. Uh, we use a list of criteria that people readily recognise, and depending on the number of the criteria someone recognises, we would see we, we would be able to categorise it then as mild, moderate, or severe. Now, the person who's in treatment for standalone gambling addiction, it's usually of the severe kind, and very much of the kind that Tony was talking to you about um, a few minutes ago, but. It's Somebody might also be here and it might be a cocaine addiction or an alcohol addiction and the the gambling activity then is registering as more mild or moderate, not necessarily severe. Um, And then part of being in treatment is extending the person's awareness to see how the addiction might be active. Um, more active than they they thought and the education about addiction is a key contribution that we make towards someone managing their addiction so that people really get wise to how the addiction is active in their life and what they might be doing that is actually facilitating the addiction to continue and we'd like them to stop facilitating the addiction to continue and start uh, behaving in such a way that facilitates the recovery or the rehabilitation
3: okay some people have gambling problems and some people uh, are suffering from problem gambling and there is a difference uh, between the two Uh, you know gambling problems can cause lack of cash flow or whatever it doesn't necessarily make you a problem gambler but a problem gambler will spend an inordinate amount of
1: time in the bookies in the casino, at a racetrack, at a dog track etc, is that correct? That's right. Yes it is there's the problem gambling is gambling that is problematic, you know, there's something not uh, recreational about it, it's, it's, it's not simply recreational uh, it's, it's, it's problematic in the way the person is gambling, if that continues then the person will have problems resulting from gambling and they will be largely financial, but they might also be emotional and affecting mental health, affecting relationships and um, getting someone into 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 trouble so there 's problems that result from gambling and problem gambling then is something that might develop from that, and the whole way someone engages with gambling activity is problematic
3: and what about behavioral aspects uh, if, if a spouse or a partner uh, is looking at behavioral aspects or uh, you know a change in attitude, a change in homecoming times. What's, what's good to look out for?
1: Well, the bank account is good to look out for and the, um, the bank statements are good to look out for. Um, the great sense that a person isn't really present, isn't really available for a conversation or for a relationship, that the person has kind of gone into themselves and very preoccupied in their own mind, but they can't let anybody know this. So if somebody is going home and they're mad for gambling, they just have a craving for gambling, but they're expected to have dinner with the family, put the kids to bed, and it might be 9 or 10 or 11 o'clock before they get the opportunity to gamble. That person, from when they come home until 11 o'clock, if you have the time in the busy family life to tune into how that person is, you'll realize they're a bit distracted, they're not really there, they're not really fully engaged with the conversation and um, they, they're just waiting for the opportunity to indulge themselves in the gambling activity if that makes sense yeah. so we so, would often remark we, we would often remark as someone goes through treatment here for gambling addiction that the person seems to be doing well, everything seems to be going according to plan, uh, they're happy with everything about treatment and then we start wondering do we really know this person at all, is this person really being real with us and I think there is something about the gambling addict that they really get very good at putting out a, a, a kind of a False exterior or or wearing a mask and you know the term the poker face you know and it's very important that you're not giving away how you really are and i think a gambler kind of assumes that kind of a, a character trait so it can be difficult for someone to know there is a gambling problem there's no obvious clues that that there is a gambling problem the bank statement will tell it to you or somebody on their phone or on a one of the home devices that allow access to gambling and that somebody is doing that in an, in an, in an excessive way um, for an excessive amount of time or that they're very engaged with, they're very excited by the whole interaction with the, with the, with the gambling uh, technology.
3: Yeah, of course, casinos and bookies where no staff are required, mm-hmm. you've got to put the initial investment into the the technology, of course, but these must have been very attractive for all of the big gambling operations. Is, is it enough that with all of these flashy technological advances and ready access in your pocket to thousands of available bets, is, is it good enough that the owners of these operations are saying, please gamble responsibly?
1: Yes, it's not enough. No, it's not enough. We're going to have to expect more of the um, industry that provides opportunities to gamble that they are uh, limiting how much people can gamble um, and that they have some way of looking after people who have recognized gambling problems and that there is a responsibility for them, uh, a responsibility on the gambling industry to be careful with people who have gambling problems. Okay. I don't know how that's going to materialize or how that's going to work in practice but I think there will have to be regulation on the gambling industry to, to protect uh, people with, with, with gambling problems who could be losing a, a extraordinary amounts of money.
3: And if somebody with a serious gambling problem contacts you today Mick Devine at uh, the Table Group how long will he be waiting to be seen?
1: They'll probably be seen before the end of next week Mick. Okay. So not, not a long time. Not a long ways at all. Not a long ways at all. They will, if, if we feel as a result of that, we call that an assessment, if we feel as a result of that assessment that they'd benefit from one of our residential programmes, they would probably be in treatment by the end of the week following or, 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 or the start of the week following that, about 10-day wait at the moment.
3: Okay. And from your own pamphlet, uh, uh, we'll finish with this. If you or a loved one is caught up in the grip of problem gambling, call Tabor Group today to discuss treatment options at 021 488 7110. That's 021-488-7110 or visit the website at www.taborgroup.ie Seek help and take the initiative. You don't need to go through this alone. There are thousands of others out there who are in the same situation. Give Tabor Group a call and they will guide you through the various options for treatment. They have decades of experience and uh, I thank you for bringing your experience to bear on the programme this morning. Mick Devine, Clinical Director at the Tabor Group. Thank you very much. Once again, it's 21 or tablegroup.ie uh, You can also um, log on to gamblersanonymous.ie gamblersanonymous.ie or if uh, the programme has affected you and you want to have uh, maybe a chat about it uh, before you consider gamblersanonymous.ie or the tablegroup then the Samaritans are always available on 116 123.
0: 116 123. When court talks, car people blow my mind. They talk to Neil prendeville on Red FM.
3: The time now is coming up on 25 minutes to 11 o'clock. Uh, just get through a few texts before we take the commercial break. Uh, on Ian Bailey, Mick, after all these years, Ian Bailey was cremated under the radar. RTE didn't even mention it. Why was it so quiet? I wonder if his number one fan that was on your show knew about it or did he maybe go uh, to the cremation? Not sure who you're talking about there, but that came in from Anne. Uh, it was kept quiet because it was kept quiet uh, at the wishes of uh, Ian Bailey's brother. Uh, I'm sure it was uh, released last night in time for the morning papers, but maybe not in time for RT, I don't know, just heard about it myself this morning. On the Ukrainian situation our government continues to refer to Ireland's obligations under EEC law with regard to refugees but Ireland continues to pay refugees up to seven times more money than what's been paid ...around other EEC countries. There is a great unease in Yall... ...as the government is slipping in 130 asylum seekers... ...into the Ukrainian hotel-stroke apartments in Redbarn and Yall. Yall Local Radio had to do a special programme... ...with Mary Linehan Foley, James O'Connor and David Stanton... ...and it was confirmed. Yall is their new dumping ground. Also, all Ukrainians here before the new law passed... ...will stay on full benefits... Uh, says kira i was wondering that all ukrainians here before the new laws passed will stay on full benefits 220 a week rather than the 3880 or so that's been mooted Uh, and a note from our production team there are 118 people going into red barn either couples with children or mothers with children uh that's per uh david stanton uh, on Cry 104 FM, Drive Time, with Declan Matthews. So thank you, guys. 118 people going into Redbarn, either couples with children or mothers with children. Now the texter says, you can be sure the reason is that the owners are afraid of an arson attack. I did uh, bring that up with Joe Kavanagh. Uh, and who is planning on using bunk beds? OAPs? I don't think so. Uh, one more. These protesters aren't even from here. Isn't it strange how the Open Borders Brigade, who are happy to welcome unlimited numbers from all over the world seem to have an issue with Irish men and women legally exercising their constitutional right to peacefully protest in their own country.
0: The Neil Prenderville Show on Red FM.
3: Good morning, it's 20 minutes to 11, and unless you were on the moon yesterday, you probably will know that Cork got some good news in the Oscars nomination announcements.
0: For performance by an actor in a leading
6: role. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm.
0: Coleman Domingo in Rustin, Paul Giamatti in The Holdovers, Killian Murphy in Oppenheimer, and Jeffrey Rett in American Fiction.
3: And David Barry is the principal of Presentation Brothers College. Thank you for holding, David, and good morning to you. Uh, good morning, Mick. How are you? I'm good. Now, Killian spent six years with you guys in Prez, did his leaving cert in 1995. Tell me a little about uh, interactions there and memories on the ground of him.
4: I suppose, uh, first and foremost, uh, the school would just want to wish Killian and his family um, great congratulations on his wonderful achievement on uh, receiving the Oscar nomination yesterday. Yeah, as you said, Mick, um, he attended the school for six years and completed his leaving cert in 1995 and he went on to study law in UCC. Um, So like uh, all pupils here, uh, he would have played a bit of rugby, maybe in the junior years, but um, in transition year then, um, his love of the arts sort of came to the fore, and that was probably due in some way to our TY coordinator at the time, Liz Kerwin, uh, who brought in another past pupil, Pat Kiernan, from the theatre group Corka and they set up a drama module. Now, uh, Killian participated in this, and I suppose it might be from there that uh, he was noticed by Pat um, from Corkadurka. And um, Killian was also involved in bands in the school. He played with his brother Paddy and a number of other pupils, and they played uh, lunchtime gigs in the school. So, really, I'd say from transition year on, um, he sort of got the bug, I suppose, for the arts and performing. And um, he went on later uh, to do that uh, in college and on into his career. I suppose in the school um, he was a good student. Uh, the teachers um, that I've spoken to that um, taught him now—they're all retired and have left now. But they said that um, he was a particularly talented English student and enjoyed um, poetry and plays. I suppose um, uh, the last uh, connection we've had with Killian is that um, Killian edited a, a book with Pat Dolan and Julian Brown and Mark Brennan called um, "Unvo." It's the Empty Book of Ireland. And um, it's really, I suppose, trying to bring empathy uh, into everyday life. And um, they presented each school with one of these books um, from Mercier Press. And Killian's um, is the first, um, say, chapter in, in the book. So um, he's a patron of the UNESCO Child and Family Resource Centre in uh, University Galway. And um, so he's really uh, interested in um, the arts, performing, but also helping out uh, young children and families. So... Uh, he's always giving back, which is something that we're really, really proud of, you know?
3: OK, and, and we're seeing a lot of actors now who would be of certain notoriety on the silver screen making the jump across to TV as well. Uh, I know that Killian was one of the earlier ones uh, who did that with Peaky Blinders. We're now seeing the likes of Woody Harrelson and Billy Bob Thornton, Kevin Costner, uh, all of the big stars of the silver screen now uh, making the... Uh, consumable uh, TV shows but when you look at uh, something like Peaky Blinders or Yellowstone, absolutely huge all over the world
4: Yeah, absolutely, I suppose um, uh, Killian's acting really came from the stage um, where he worked uh, with Corka Durk and other uh, theatre productions and uh, you know, they moved around so I suppose he really learnt his craft on the boards, you know, and um, got opportunities then on the big screen and I suppose Um, with the new streaming services you know, there's uh, such opportunities to go onto the small screen, so... Uh, I suppose Killian's, um sort of uh, showed his uh, skills and variety as, um, as an actor being able to do the three performances you know
3: Okay and of course he's, he's equally um, proficient on the boards and has professed his love for any acting role be it silver screen be it TV uh, or even in uh, theatre his love for English and poetry is evident from his English teachers but I believe and I hope I don't put you on the spot here I believe he may have got suspended maybe once or twice
4: well, listen, uh, I wasn't a principal at the time, so that wouldn't have been my responsibility at all, Mick. So that would have been a, a, a previous presentation, brother or brother's, maybe. And so um, I suppose, listen, um, Killian, uh is probably, you know, a very artistic person. And um, so... You could say that um, the, the structures of, of you know, uh, an organisation like a school with 700 pupils, he might have f- found a little bit difficult, but, um, you know, it's what, he was minded and protected, and that's all the school could do. But uh, if he couldn't follow all the rules all the time, then I suppose the, the school had to follow its procedures. So i got to support uh, the former principals for that, but I'm sure Killian. Uh, would understand that as well as parent know of um, you know teenage children, you
3: know? Yeah, apparently he was out in Ballant Temple a couple of nights ago walking his dog shook hands with a couple of people um, One final comment um, Cork stars are often self-deprecating often humble but within all of that also fiercely proud of their Cork roots. I take Roy Keane for example but I also yeah. remember Killian when he was asked in London, um, what's the best city in the world for pubs? And he said, "Well, I'm from Ireland, so I'm not going to say London, am I? I'm going to say Cork City." Yeah,
4: yeah, yeah. Well, I suppose um, there's a pride in uh, where you're coming from, and um, I suppose being able to be humble and uh, to be supportive of your local community uh, is something that would be really important if you're on the on the world stage. So I suppose Killian is very good with that, you know.
3: Okay, and will you think? Uh, do you
4: think you'll persuade him to visit with the Oscar if he wins? Well, listen, all we can do is extend the invite. I know that he has visited the school in the past uh, after leaving. uh, um, So we would be delighted for him to come back if he was successful with the Oscar. And we'd be delighted for him to come back, even if he wasn't, uh, to visit us with his Golden Globe, you know?
3: Okay. and uh, will you promise no homework on the night? That might get him across the line. Uh, yeah,
4: we definitely promise no homework, you know, just All for right. first
3: years, though. All okay. right. <laughs> okay. Presentation, Brothers College Principal David Barry. Thank you for coming on the program okay. this morning. Thanks. Thanks
0: very much. The Bruce. Neil, Neil Prendiville Show on Red FM. Conversation that matters.
3: And a very good morning from the Neil Prenderville Show at 10 minutes to 11 o'clock. Very quickly, William Wall is Killian Murphy's former English teacher in pres and an author himself. Morning, William. Good morning. Okay, you, you also want to distance yourself uh, from the uh, from the temporary suspensions. That was before your time as well, is it?
7: It <laughs> <laughs> was well before my time, yeah. You and, you no, and... he had, he's, he's on record as saying that he had decided to settle down by fifth year, uh, which is when I, I took him over, as far right. as I remember, you know. So I think I, I got the, um, the, the more disciplined end of him. But you gave
3: him the nudge into getting involved in drama, and for that you must take a lot of
7: satisfaction. Well, that's what he says, and I I have to believe him, you know. But, I mean, basically he was a really good um, uh, student of English. He's just one of those kids who got poetry, got Shakespeare, got novels, understood it, you know. And so uh, it wasn't hard to teach him. And I could also see from the fact that he was a performer, um, you know, he had the band The Sons of Mr. Green Jeans, and they played in the school a couple of times. Uh, you could see that he was a natural for for performance, so it, it wasn't hard to encourage him to go into the arts. Let's say,
3: okay. But th- th- there's something about Killian Murphy in whatever role you see him. There's just just this commanding presence. This magnetic absolutely. attraction to watching him. I yeah. mean, you, you couldn't take yeah. your eyes off him in Peaky Blinders. You can't take your eyes off him as good as Robert Downey Jr.'s performance was, and I think deserves the best supporting actor. I'm not even sure if he was nominated. Absolutely outstanding performance. But yeah. you just couldn't take yeah. your eyes
7: off Killian Murphy. No, you couldn't. Yeah, absolutely. Um, do you know, I, I recently gave a, a talk about my work in a, mm-hmm. um, a secondary school in Italy, and um, at the end of the session there were questions and one of the questions was, was it true that um, I had uh, I had taught Killian Murphy and when I said it was uh, a group of people at the back almost passed out in, in ecstasy at the thought that they were in the <laughs> presence of somebody who had been in the presence of somebody as great as Killian <laughs> Murphy <laughs> so M- Meanwhile you, know, you, you uh, could
3: have uh, met him walking his dog in Bella that's Temple that's the other exactly
7: night exactly, you, know. you, you,
3: you, you also said though he had a kind of an edginess about his persona
7: yeah, very definitely, uh, and and there was uh, indeed in school as well. You know, he had, he sort of balanced um, uh, an anti-establishment um, attitude, anti-authoritarian attitude, with this uh, deep interest in, in culture and the arts. You know, so and he was a sort of a leader in his class in that regard as well. Uh, you know, um, a sort of edgy. Um, uh, yeah, not a, quite an awkward customer, but the customer who would come up with the awkward questions.
3: Okay, and uh, he was in a band, of course, as well. The Sons of Mr. Green Jeans, I know. Yeah, the
7: Sons of Mr. Green Jeans—they were—they fin- were actually fantastic. I'll tell you a story. They gave my wife, who uh, encouraged the, uh, she was a maths teacher in the school, she encouraged the the music a lot, you know, and mm-hmm. um, the the band gave her a present of a, a demo tape, and uh, which she had for several years. And then one day she came back. We'd been out someplace, and she said, "I'm going to play that demo tape." And uh, at this stage, Killian had been in the film of Disco Pigs, and so she went looking for the tape anyway. And one of her sons had um, over-taped the whole thing with uh, uh, summer music for himself, you know. Yeah. So, <laughs> so Uh-oh. that was that tape gone. And and and.
3: In, in, yeah. in, the, in the days before, you know, the electronic filing and all that kind of thing, when, when we, we hold yeah. stuff on cassette tapes, I, I had a prize exactly. possession, which was an interview I did with Rory Gallagher. And I, I can't for the life of me yeah. remember who I gave it to, but it never came back. Um, oh, yeah. So, okay. You, but you, you reckon from the start he was a fantastic actor, and you knew from his uh, 16th year that he would end up, uh, at least if not musically, he could have forked out and went that way, of course, but you kind of knew he was going to yeah. do something creative.
7: Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, he had to, you know. And he, he, when he went into law in college, I was kind of surprised, really. Not surprised in that I, I knew he could be an excellent lawyer as well, you know. I could I could easily see him being a performing barrister in the, the four courts in Dublin. But it, <clears throat> he, I, I felt he should have gone into something to do with the arts. And I knew, in a way, I knew he would eventually. So when Disco Pigs came out, uh, I was completely blown away by it. And uh, I knew he had found his metier then, you know.
3: Okay, an, an Oscar nomination, not to mention the Screen Actors Guild, the Golden Globe or the BAFTA, uh, which there are nominations yep. pertaining there as well. And An Oscar nomination uh, yeah. alone would probably double your, your pulling power and your earning power, but of course he has it already. He's already one of the top leading men in the world now.
7: He is, and he's. Uh, he, uh, what I like about him actually is he's one of those actors, and there there are a few enough of them, who are extremely selective about, um, about what, what work he does. You know, um, he he won't read scripts, and he'll he'll um, he'll pick the ones that he wants to do. He's very very careful about it, and I think that's great. You know, uh,
3: I think he shares that with his co-star in Oppenheimer, um, Matt Damon. Uh, I was yeah. watching an interview so, with, yeah. with 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 yeah. Matt Damon. He's been very selective. He's going to do Born Six, uh, but he's going to pick the director. It has to be a cracker of a story. I'm not doing it otherwise. He he, he also didn't yeah. appear in one because he couldn't get the director he wanted, um, and, yeah. and and. He also starred in in Oppenheimer and him both he and Robert Downey Jr are just lauding Killian Murphy's performance.
7: Yeah, 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 he's a, he's an actor's actor as well, you know. He's up against um Paul Giametti you know. Unbelievable uh, actor. Yeah, yeah, and uh, he's a very similar character to Killian in the sense that he said recently that uh, he hates to play himself. Uh you know, that could apply to Killian as well. You know that that awkward stance in the presence of, of interviews and so on, like that. That's really that, that's kind of bred in the bone with him. That's, yeah, but he's that's not he, he, a, he's that's played parts. Or,
3: in, I, no? I couldn't imagine Killian playing. Like he he played a, a part called Pig Vomit. Who was the program director for Howard Stern in, in private parts? But he's also played um, Chuck Rhodes in Billions, which was an absolute fantastic performance, along with uh, d- Jamie and Lewis. William, i I, I got to go to uh, to news at 11 o'clock. Congrats on your appointment in May 2021 as Cork's Poet Laureate. I know you've been right. prolific thanks, thanks in your writing since then. Yeah. And thanks for coming on this morning.
0: Thank you. Cheers. Bye bye. The Neil Prenderville Show on Red FM. Conversation that matters.
3: Eight minutes past 11. Peter O'Donoghue created a petition to keep cash last year following a decision by a Cork restaurant to go cashless. And so we cover that restaurant on The Neil Prandival Show. And to be fair, the owner had um, very, very valid and salient arguments for not using cash. Good morning to you, Peter.
9: Good morning, Mick. How are you
3: this morning? Uh, very good. Now, I, I know that this, uh, th- there's been moves by Minister Michael McGrath uh, that will ensure that cash is usable in, into the future for certain uh, vital services. The restaurant uh, industry may escape that, it not being a vital service. Um, but uh, tomorrow you have a petition to present to the Joint Committee uh, of Public Petitions. So tell us all about that.
9: Yeah, so I suppose uh probably a year ago now, um, I walked into the Lord of the Barn restaurant and there was a sign up there that said um cash was not accepted on these premises and I was I was um appalled by that sign because in my opinion any business or any organization that doesn't accept the usage of cash is they are discriminating against uh, people in our society hundreds of thousands of people in our society um, who include the elderly, who intellectually uh, disabled, uh, recent immigrants um, you know people in general that don't, don't use uh, that don't have a bank account uh, use cash and when businesses and organisations uh, say that they don't accept cash it's, it's discrimination it's, it, and I don't, we should never tolerate discrimination in this country so We put together a petition um, for the Joint Committee on Public Petitions to look at um, regards the issue of cash and discrimination. And um, I suppose, yeah, we've just under 6,000 signatures on that petition. And we sent that petition in a number of months ago, and it's gone through the whole procedure now. And tomorrow, the, the Committee on Public Petitions will be looking at that petition And um, then seeing where they're going to go from there, regards the petition.
3: Okay. It looks to me as though certain businesses, or all businesses, can refuse to take cash. Uh, right now but that will not be the case later in the year if this legislation uh, goes through Uh, uh, the government has passed uh, Michael McGrath's access to cash bill Uh, the finance minister said if the government didn't intervene he feared that the transformation to a more cashless society would have seen many people being excluded from day to day life and the normal functioning of society Uh, doesn't this render your petition more or less
9: moot? No, no because Michael McGrath, while I welcome his announcement, it does not go near far enough. Why should only certain businesses be um, forced to accept cash and not other businesses or other organisations? All businesses and all organisations should be legislated to accept cash because cash is legal payment at the end of the day. And one organisation in particular, which I think is an absolute disgrace, the GAA, the GA, with the last number of years, will not accept cash for payment to go see matches. Now, the elderly in our society are the people that brought the GA up from, from the ground up. And many of these now cannot even go and see these games at our local villages and, and parishes. And, and that is a disgrace. And all businesses and all organisations should be legislated to accept cash as legal. Uh, payment, not just certain businesses. So are you it, saying, it for instance,
3: uh, for taking the GA as an example, that if they had 10 turnstiles and nine were card only and that was flagged and signalled, then you'd be happy as long as there was one turnstile uh, that said cash only, for instance.
9: Yeah, yeah. like um, I'm not saying that we should stop using cards or contactless payments, but there always has to be an option to use cash. That's that's all we're saying. Board options should be available because we cannot accept discrimination in this country.
3: Yeah, do, do, do you know the way often before when you go into a bank years ago, uh, there'd be the local businessman would be in front of you, and he'd have fifty or sixty bags of coins to collect, and they'd be weighed out for him or whatever it would be. Uh, those days are kind of gone. But you know, when somebody pays electronically, uh, your your money is transferred from your bank to the merchant's bank, and and therefore. Uh, there there 's less security risk there 's less handling there 's less change needed there There are benefits to using cards, but you 're saying not at the, at the total exclusion of cash
9: yeah well, just on benefits of using cards there 's far more m- more money now being stolen through cybercrime than there ever was physically through, from um, physically stealing cash uh, there 's many um Negatives to to using card as well, take for instance the banks the banks, and no wonder the banks want contactless payments because the banks are making phenomenal profits from contactless payments because every transaction they're charging a fee, and those transactions add up, and over the year they're making hundreds of millions of euros profit so no wonder the banks want to get rid of cash and no wonder the banks want contactless payments and at the end of the day who loses out it's the customer who loses loses out and it's the business people the small business people of this country they're the ones that are losing out
3: okay so you're presenting your position tomorrow there was an original petition handed in a few weeks ago was there Uh, sorry was there an original petition handed in a few weeks ago well,
9: that, that petition was handed in a number of months ago and it was has gone through all the procedure now where it's got to this stage where it will be heard tomorrow.
3: OK, and um, Minister McGrath, of course, has received Cabinet approval uh, for the access to cash bill. Right? And I think he's probably looking at more rural, less populated areas that don't have um, an ATM, and may not have proper broadband coverage, may not be able to have an electronic point of sale, but but the key tenet here uh, is that we need cash to a certain extent along with the digital payments in our economy.
9: Yeah, we, we need both systems in place. Um, now, as well after the, the, the incident with the Barron restaurant, I was invited to and by the Rural Independent Group and the Rural Independent Group brought forward a motion where cash would be protected. And um, so... And there have been many groups across the country have been, have been fighting over the last number of months to, for the protection of cash. And I would say this pressure has been building on the government and the government has been forced to take action. But from what I can see and from what I'm hearing, I, I, I believe that this could be a public relations stunt because obviously there's an election coming up here in the, number, in the next number of months, a local election. And there'll be a general election coming up at the end of the year or maybe next year. And this government has to be seen to make a move that looks like it's trying to protect cash. And this is what they're doing. But it's not just good enough to make sure that there's ATMs across the country that have, are, are stocked with cash. The government has to go further than that and bring in the proper legislation that will ensure that all businesses and all organisations accept cash, except under extreme circumstances.
3: Okay, the bill requires compliance with regional criteria that set the minimum number of ATMs per 100,000 people of population and also the proportion of ATMs within 10 kilometres, or the proportion of the population, I suppose, within 10 kilometres of an ATM and a cash service point. There were 4,200 ATMs uh, in the country in late 2022, the bill will ensure that that level will stay. Uh, And there are currently between 73 and 95 ATMs between 100,000 people. So I think that's where they'll be pegging it, depending on what part of the country they're in. It's probably going to be 70, 75 as a minimum. Uh, Even in the West, though, which is is more rural, really, than uh, the rest of the country, 97% of people are within 10 kilometres of an ATM. So uh, I suppose if the government did nothing, though... Um, ability across the country to access cash would have decreased. They're doing something, but you reckon more needs to be done.
9: Yeah, and it's it's obviously good news that they're doing something, but more needs to be done. Okay, uh, yeah, that's all right, Peter.
3: Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Mick. That's Peter. Thanks, th- with, uh, th- thanks you too. That's Peter O'Donoghue who created a petition to keep cash last year. Uh, following a decision by a restaurant to go cashless now. And Mike, Ly- Mike Ryan is on line one, uh, and he's the head chef at Corn Store and chair of the Cork branch of the Restaurants Association of Ireland. Good morning to you, Mike.
2: Good morning. How are you?
3: Very good. And uh, I-, I think a lot of your members would prefer if lots more cash came their way and lots more debit cards, yeah?
2: Oh, for sure. I think, like, for the businesses when we came out of COVID um, I think the first couple of weeks we were operating a 95% um, card because I think people were so used to using cards but it's after coming back an awful lot but I suppose the thing is that you know when if if someone puts a tip on through the system for, through a card it has to be processed through the system and then it has to be taxed whereas the, the guys on the ground would prefer and taxed and given to them but then once it's processed through the system that's what has to happen but like when the guys on the ground like traditionally would prefer cash as well you know as do the businesses because there's times there that we didn't even have enough cash in the the, t- the tills to pay out the tips on the night because there was so much Caribbean news but that's you know that's after pulling back now at this stage you know Okay, I, a, I, I'll, get to, cash.
3: I'll get to the tips thing in a moment but I remember the uh, interview with Neil last year and the restaurant owner uh, because mm-hmm. We fully expected the restaurant owner wouldn't come on the air. This is a massive furore about not accepting cash, etc. And he came on and gave, and I know the guy actually personally, uh, he came on and gave the most valid arguments I've ever heard about um, you n- not having cash on the premises. One less member of staff, much less con- uh, security concerns, much less banking costs, even though cards are charged for, Um and as as long as people knew on the way in that uh, cash wouldn't be accepted, that it would be card-only, there's no problem whatsoever. And, and he gave great arguments around his decision to make his restaurant card-only.
2: I can understand it. Um, cash handling is always a big problem and um, in, in, in having extra people on site. But normally those people are on site because you're clearing down anyway. I know that there's, there's it all depends on what you actually believe yourself. Like uh, my dad, if he came into the restaurant, wouldn't pay with a card. You know, he'd he'd want to use cash. I I'm, I I still like using cash because it's it's a way for me to kind of uh, budget what I'm using. It's too easy to tap all the time. So if you have cash in your pocket, you have you put aside. 60 or 70 quid in your pocket and you have it going around well then you know you spent that it all depends on per- personal choice and I suppose that's what people need to be allowed to have is personal choice You no. know,
3: Mike everybody needs to eat not necessarily eat in restaurants but the, the, the more vibrant the restaurant scene in the town the more tourism and the more I, I suppose the more buzz that's around the place and the more money is spent um, but who would have a restaurant these days it's like who would have a pub um, it's becoming ever more difficult you, for you guys I, I know you, that
2: you'd question the sheriff yeah you question yeah. your sanity sometimes, you know. If you if you spoke for years if you spoke to accountants, they kinda go, uh, that will deal with multifaceted businesses that wouldn't just be hospitality and you guys are crazy. You know, because of when you weigh up the time that's put into it to to what the return is where you could do it maybe in a different business have a better return. And, and go, and go home at five o'clock <laughs> and go home and close the doors and don't worry about it. But look, I suppose it all depends on what you like to do. And myself I had a different career years ago, but you know, I was born into the industry. My mother was a chef, and that's what I owe. no matter how hard she tried, I kept got. I was drawn back to it all the time. So, look, that's the way it is. People, people for different reasons work in the industry because they love it. You know what I mean? I don't think these days with full employment, anyone that's working in the in these industries do it because they love it. Okay, and because it suits
3: their lifestyle. We we covered this slightly last week, but do you think that the, some of the hotels who caused the heavy handed attitude from Minister Pascal Donahue like. were you know, did a disservice to the restaurants which were you know, they were they were treated equally along with that to no you're not getting the VAT reduction back.
2: Sorry, Mick, the line broke down there a second yeah. ago. Sorry. No, it's
3: just that some some of the hotels would be seen to have caused Minister Pascal Donahue to react in a strong fashion. With the, uh, with the return of the 13.5%. Um, do you mm-hmm. think the restaurants were, were treated unfairly in that respect and that they weren't price gouging? I do, 100%. Um,
2: I think, and it wasn't all hotels. And it was, uh, there was, I think it's well, it's been well documented, I think, where the problem lay. Um, and you had certain hotels that were charging extortionate prices, even maybe be it for a, an event that might be coming on or whatever it was it was just demand but like you know and there was there was arguments out there about being it was only the last few beds or whatever it may be or that it was the same as the last few beds or seats on a plane but I, the restaurant's argument is if I have two more specials left I don't up the price on them at the end of the day you know yeah. they're still the same price you know so yeah we were treated unfairly I do believe because there was an awful lot of information given to what it would actually do and, like, no one wants to say that, you know, well, I told you so. But, like, the reality is, part of the problems that we're dealing with right now are because of that fat increase. You
3: okay, know, so a lot
2: of the... Uh, yeah, sorry. If,
3: if, if you have your chance, and you kind of do to an extent right now, to, to speak truth to power, well, what would you implore the government to do?
2: Well, for every restaurant... There's lots of different factors. It could be labour inflation, it could be energy. But the one thing that everyone is suffering with right now is the VAT increase. It really put on uh, another chain around the neck of restaurants. If you actually do your maths on what it actually means at the end of the uh, the round of the year, it's actually huge. Like if you're just uh, like all the, the what's after. The problem is there's been an awful lot of uh, policies implemented in one time and you can see why it's been done but like which when you have your the VAT increase was one item then you had your like the minimum wage but anyone that like that is not the actual factor it's the wage inflation that caused up along the line i don't um anyone that's working in the industry would know that like if you have any bit of experience at all you're, you were paid above a lot a lot above that level anyway but the problem the wage uh, minimum wage was it brought up uh, across the line so it's going to cause a 10% uh, wage inflation through the year and then you have your warehouse
3: debt which is another factor for a lot of people You've got 10 years that on that though Sorry? You've got 10 years on that
2: Well the thing is it's still another well up to recently no because what was happening was you had a revenue coming in quite aggressively into restaurants looking for the payments and it put a, a lot of people went enough's enough Um so Yes, but only 80% of people had, or 20% of people had engaged. 80% hadn't because they didn't have the money. So it, that, it, that was another factor. And it's still, it's only kicking the can down the road, but it's it was, it is a help. But it was the, it's still, it was still another factor. There's multiple factors. But I think, as you asked right now, the biggest thing would be the VAT. But there's also at the, through the middle part of the year, they're bringing auto-enrollment for pensions, which would mean that there's, Uh, Another uh, increase, uh, another onus on the employer to match up to one and a half percent, which sounds small for one individual, but when you add it all up, all these factors accumulate into. If you turn just for example, if you turn a million euros a year, which is which is actually not a big figure because it's about twenty thousand a week, twenty grand a week. If you turn it, you know, the actual impact on these policies is going to be a hundred thousand to your bottom line extra this year than it was last year. And if you drill that back, that's for like, that's like, if you're turning 20 K a week, you could be a cafe or a, a small, a small sandwich shop or you know, it's not a huge figure, right. When you do 20 grand a week, but that breaks down to 250 euros a day extra that you have to find that you have to get off your customers. So if you do 200 customers a day, you have to get about 110 of them or whatever it may be extra off every single person just to cover the charges, that have been put on upon on, you outside of all the other business costs you have and the inflation on your food, which is still there. And, you know, energy, I know domestic is coming down, commercial isn't, you know, so you're still at a very high rate. So all these things put together are, 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 are putting a stranglehold on the food-led businesses in the country. And this is a massive problem. And one of the things that can alleviate that straight away would be a rollback on the vat.
3: Yeah, and and listen. Just just in case any listeners think you're sounding like P. Flynn, keeping a couple of houses and a couple of housekeepers on 140 grand a year, as he said on the Late Late Show. If somebody thinks 20 grand a week is a lot of money for a restaurant, let let's look at the costs that come out of it. Number one, of course, is uh, is the food. Number two, the premises. Uh, Let's forget about depreciation, but there is upkeep. Then you've got insurance. Then you've got rates. uh, Not to mention staff. Uh, before you even switch on a light bulb or turn on uh, an oven, which is on constantly, or gas rings, which are uh, which are constantly running, could you could you kind of break down twenty grand a week? And you're, as you're saying, that's a small cafe.
2: Uh, yeah, and that's a, but like the thing is, if you just have if you have a small cafe, you're, you're there yourself and probably have two or three people ha- ha- working with you who would be taking home. You know, if they're working even part time you know, they'd be taking three or 400 quid or they could be taking, if they're full-time, it they could be five or five or 600 quid. Yep. Like, you very quickly, you eat into, uh, as your initial question was, why would you go into this business? Like, when you look at that, when you look at those figures, you actually think about your energy costs, your food costs. Like, at the moment, a lot of restaurants in, so, I, I, for January especially, talking to a lot of people locally and nationally, because we've done surveys, are operating on a fifty percent wage cost. So fifty percent of what they take in every week is paid out in on, on wages.
3: And then you've got to buy the food and do everything else And then you, take you have a to buy,
2: yeah. But fifty like but going back in the day, the the metric was thirty two percent should be your wages. It was a third, a third, a third. So thirty two percent it was uh, it was basically a third on your wages, third on your food and third on your rent. that make to make or, or all your other bills, just to kind of basically make a margin of about are uh, a bottom line about five to eight percent was the, the going could take. If you talk to most accountants and they were telling you, if your accountant was doing uh, your books and you going, you're thirty six, you're thirty eight percent weight percentage, which it would have been a good few years ago, you're in dangerous territory. We, I, 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 same, I, I won't ask you
3: doing. to get into the intricacies between margin and profit, but what, what sort of margin are you looking at looking at on your food? Is, is it still in the fifty to sixty percent range? Well, a lot, to be honest, but to cover most, you have
2: to be working at seventy right now. Seventy, so you, you, want, you you have to be looking at seventy because if you factor in the increased energies that you're looking at, the increase like energy costs, outputs that you have, your gas, your electricity, the cost of your food, you have to be looking at about seventy would be the the rate that will be. The, anything under that, you're in dangerous territory of really not like been in trouble. like Okay.
3: Um, and uh, I did say I would come back to tips. Wouldn't staff prefer much more cash to be going over the counter and less card? Because and so it's, would. It's easier for so tips. So would,
2: so, would, so, so, so would the businesses. Because like you, as I said, if it goes through a card, it has to be processed because it has to go on to your payslip. And so you have to have someone in the office processing it. Um, you have to have, then you're paying bank charges on on those cards. But on those transactions that uh, on the business side, uh, so businesses would prefer if th- there was cash, and then it's divided the, through the restaurant, whatever way it's worked with the staff. Normally, it's a trunk system that they do that is divvied amongst everyone from yeah, the house and back, but back. Then
3: that cash isn't, for the most part, reported to revenues. It's tax-free income.
2: Well, that's well, that's also, but that's been traditionally the way things have been for years. And yes, that is part of the argument. But it's up like but the thing is that if it's if it's it's the argument is for gratuity, it's like a gift yeah okay. so you can't you know i I suppose it's just a system that's been there I suppose the question is would you, staff prefer it and if you're giving over if you're giving someone a tip for the service you've had or the experience you have in a restaurant would you not prefer that all the people involved got all of it as opposed to paying some of it to the government because you've already paid some of it to the government to your charges on the food already.
3: Yeah, apparently, so, in, apparently in America right now, if you're mildly displeased with the service, fifteen percent. If you're pleased with the service, twenty uh, percent, and even up to twenty five percent tip is not just expected, sometimes demanded uh, in in American restaurants. Now, it's a huge amount of money to put on top of a meal. Massive. It is massive, and and uh, the, the cost of eating out
2: in in the US is is, is expensive anyway. Um, like traditionally what happened was the servers there, they they weren't getting paid, they were working through their tips um, so they were, they, their income was coming through their tips as time went on though, um, businesses were paying the staff uh, a wage as well or a minimum wage or whatever wage it was that was agreed within each state but the tipping system, its culture stayed in place, so I have like ex-managers um, that have worked with us that are living in the States and working in the States and like they're telling us like what they're coming home with and it's insane and <laughs> they think course, it's yeah. insane I'm going
3: to have to but leave it there a
2: taxes on the other end though
3: yeah, I'll have to leave it there, Mike. Thanks very much. Mike Ryan, head chef at Corn Store. Always a great place to go for a bit of grub. Thank you very much. 11.30 Thank now. You. Text or WhatsApp Neil now.
0: 0868 104 106. The Neil Prenderville Show on Red FM.
3: Good morning from the Neil Prenderville Show and good morning to Owen Corrie,
10: editor of Air and Travel Magazine. Hiya, Owen. Oh, good morning. or Good afternoon where I am. I'm in Madrid, at a very, very big tourism fair here, the first of the major world ones for the year. Uh, I may be jumping into an interview with the Spanish Tourism Minister in a minute or two, but delighted to be talking to you, Neil.
3: We never, we never know where we find you. This is Mick, actually, but um, I, I watched the plane oh, Mick, on... on my apologies. I watched the plane on one of the flying apps yesterday, uh, Circle Cork Airport, eight times, and then divert to Shannon. Uh, how much disruption has Storm Isha caused, Owen?
10: Um, Storm Isha was the big one. We had 166 cancellations. We had 37 go-arounds. Uh, that was in Dublin alone. It impacted more heavily in Dublin for a reason I like lying in a minute. But there was f- uh, just a, c- a few, very, very few cancellations uh, out of Jocelyn. We had, I think, four in each direction in Dublin uh, and about six or seven go-arounds. But as you say, the flight apps were a joy to watch. People, uh, Flight Radar 24, people who uh, really have no interest in aviation spent all Sunday glued to them. It was like a child's crayon being drawn <laughs> across the map of Europe. So we had some weird and wonderful diversions. Yeah, My weird. Uh, probably
3: uh, was a flight from Shannon to Edinburgh, Shannon to Edinburgh ended yeah. up in Cologne. Uh, one from. Cologne. Uh, here, uh, I, 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 we'll unique, do it as a quiz. We'll do it as a quiz, will we? <laughs> Manchester to Dublin. <laughs> Manchester oh, yeah. to Dublin. Manchester to Dublin.
10: Where did it end up? ended up in. It ended up in Beauvais in Paris. Okay. La- the Paris, it's, it's, Beauvais is nowhere near Paris, by it's, the way. But I Paris is where they And it's a meme machine. Check out what's happening. Everybody is putting up these marvellous sex-in-the-city scenes, you know, where she wakes up and she looks to the right and she sees the Eiffel Tower, and, she, and it's sort of me after my flight from Manchester to Dublin. Yeah,
3: it's about 60, 70 miles down the road. Lanzarote to
10: Dublin, return to? It came back to Bordeaux. Uh, that was a big one because it went all the way to Dublin, circled round. they saw Dublin, and then they came back, and they ended up in Bordeaux.
3: Okay, uh, uh, which is a little better than uh, what happened to the Lufthansa flight because they actually, I, I won't say touched down, but they they came very, Almost, very close.
10: Yeah, and turned around and went back. to, went back was to another, Frankfurt. It wasn't, a, it, it wasn't uh, an Irish one. It was a standstill to Newquay in Cornwall, which ended up in Malaga. You can just imagine trying to get the custom the passengers back on that. Uh, you know, you have to go to Cornwall, lads. Uh, <laughs> oh, no, no, no. I think we we'll would stay here for a while. <laughs> oh, so-
3: sorry, you're not European. Queue up in, the, in, in that line over there. <laughs> OK.
10: They, they, to, they mightn't even have had their passports with them, you know. But anyway, they, they, it was a transit. They didn't go through uh, all the immigration process. They did get back to key eventually.
3: Okay. Look, b- b- bad weather often hits airlines, but it rarely stops air travel completely, does it?
10: No. Uh, the the technology is awesome. These guys, these pilots, uh, and there's a lot of them uh, on the internet of videos of uh, aircraft landing. They do this in their sleep. They do it uh, every six months. They do uh, training, retraining programs, and um, the technology within the cockpit now is so it's built for. Uh, c- crosswinds, because crosswinds is a very normal uh, problem with aviation, and they're they're actually um, uh, very very well built up for that.
3: But speaking of technology, technology, why wouldn't the technology tell those planes don't take off for Dublin, or do they take off on the chance of getting a break and on the chance of landing?
10: Okay, the problem was that the number of movements was was reduced. There was never a question that the airport would have to be closed. With as it was in 2018, with the beast from the east and snow, I and mean, you've got to remember, three quarters of the flights in Dublin got in and out as per normal.
3: Yeah, and and I, I was reading as well that, and of course, then slots are filling up. You can't; it's it's not just a case of land your plane and park it over to the side there. You need slots for taking off as well to to get the planes yeah, back out. A, so slots began to the, fill up, uh, and then airports began to turn down requests for diversions. Shannon and Belfast filled as soon as, and then Manchester only accepted aircraft on a basis of yeah, land, refuel and take off straight away.
10: That's exactly yes. Now, Dublin actually took two diversions, but re- normal was 44, they had to reduce that, and then you're looking at your slots, your available slots, and as requests come in for diversions, airports look at what's available, what's likely. Sometimes the uh, available slot is available, then if not the aircraft moves, then it turns and comes back again. There was a novel of that uh, last Sunday,
3: Okay, what about recompense for people who were discommoded by all of this, by people who ended up in the wrong country, etc.?
10: You can get your money back if you didn't fly. You can get um, reroutes if, you, your, if your flight was affected. But it's an exceptional event, so you don't get compensation. And, uh, you know, there were people who uh, decided that they would book on an alternative carrier, and they say that they would chase the airline for that, uh, some Wait. of the airlines are likely to pay off, part for that, but very interestingly, the ones that were overnighted uh, unexpectedly, uh, the customers who were the passengers who were overnighted unexpectedly, the airlines are telling them that if they booked accommodation, they will pay uh, your hotel accommodation um, if you if you ended up back uh, overnighting because the airlines long ago the airlines were in positions where they block book hotels, but that really doesn't happen anymore, and they, they, there wasn't enough notice to to deal with the number of passengers who were in the wrong airport on Sunday night.
3: Okay, people are rebooking themselves now. Uh, Airlines are rebooking passengers and rival airlines. How long does it take with this level of disruption for things to return to normal?
10: Very quickly. By midday on Monday, everything was pretty much back to where it's supposed to be, uh, pretty much back to where it's supposed to be after Jocelyn today. One cancellation out of Dublin, none out of Cork. So the aviation industry is built uh, to recover very quickly, it 's what they do. you know there was an awful lot of aircraft in the wrong place on Monday morning, but interestingly enough, even though the storm's winds were high at ten p m on Sunday night, the direction they were coming from allowed the airport to get back and running. Ryanair brought their last aircraft in at three thirty a m I'm going to have to go now. The Minister is calling me. Okay.
3: okay. Off you go to the Minister. Thank you very much. I will, As I'm always. not saying
10: he's more important than you are, but
3: uh, <laughs> needs must. Needs have must. A great morning. Thanks yes. a million, Thank Owen. God. Always available and always very informative. Owen Corrie, editor of Air and Travel magazine. I was hoping to ask him about trends. Uh, uh, what are the destinational trends? Uh, what are the holiday trends? Is, is it uh, package or is it cruises? But maybe we'll get back to that, uh, the summer being a long way away just yet. Coming up on uh, 18 minutes to 12 now. Call
0: Neil now. 0818 The Neil Prendiville Show on Red FM.
3: It's 11.45. Just a few texts before we go to our next caller on the cash situation and going cashless. I was in the barn last Sunday and they take cash. Cash only to every business going cashless. Good luck to them, but I'm not participating in this nonsense. Another texter says, if we lost cash in the morning, then we'd become prisoners to the banks and the government. They can't invent charges and keep going. Cash is independent. Last year, uh, maybe that should read they can, but it says they can't. Uh, Last year at a match in the Aviva, it was cashless. The Wi-Fi was down and they had to provide free drinks and food. I think we covered this before, actually. This was during an American football game. Uh, in summer of 22, Wi-Fi problems meant that Tills couldn't process payments at the Aviva Stadium during the college football, American football classic, meaning food and drink was on the house for a period of time. That resulted in even longer queues, I suppose. Another just says, that caller is delusional. How can the government force a private business to accept cash payments? Public services should accept both, of course, but not privately owned businesses. Hi, Mick. Personally, I won't shop or eat in places that won't accept real cash, real money. People need to use it more often to make that point. Tears says, Mike, uh, someone needs to open uh, a coffee and a cake shop and call it only flans. Very good. Someone in the government has to point out to the revenue that their aggression is biting the hands that feed them. They're going to force most SMEs out of business. Then revenue is screwed themselves. They can't see it. It seems most revenue staff are outdoing each other to be aggressive with businesses and put small firms out of business. So says Pat on 0868 106. Now, Dan Lyons is the policy consultant with the Irish Anti-Vivi Section Society. Good morning to you, Dan. Good morning. Shocking reading this morning that Ireland has by far the highest per capita death rate in Europe for animals used in Botox testing. And this is according to an anti-animal uh, testing group. Uh, the uh, Your society, the Irish Anti-Vivisection Society, says Ireland's animal t- uh, testing death rate uh, for, uh, what, how do you pronounce it, Botilinia? Botolunum toxin or botox Bot- uh, botulinum toxin,
11: botulinum 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 yeah, so toxin botox, botox is yeah. the most fu- yeah Botox is the most famous brand and it 's a bit like Hoover's have become the gen- generic word for uh, vacuum cleaners yes. so yeah, but it technically is botulinum toxin
3: okay but we 're six times higher than anywhere else in Europe. why is that it 's mostly mice is it uh, yeah um it
11: 's uh, for some reason, a number of companies that produce Botox um, have come to Ireland to uh, to produce it and do the unlike most um, substances each batch of botulinum toxin has to be tested because it's a, a biologically active substance and also it's one of the most poisonous Uh, biological substances known to to humanity Um, so over the years uh, traditionally um, animals have been used in a very crude and severe test called the lethal dose 50% test Um, and as the name suggests um, that test involves uh, dosing animals um, with the with the, t- the toxic substance um, to find out what uh, what level uh, kills fifty percent of the of the sample rate. So, um, in terms of the, the fact that uh, death is the endpoint for a lot of these tests, um, and the what happens is the. the the botulinum toxin is injected into the animal's abdomen and then the paralysis occurs due to the toxic effect of the, of the botulinum and eventually the animals, it affects their respiratory muscles and they, they, they asphyxiate and suffocate to death. Um, and yeah, for some reason, I don't know whether it's a kind of commercial accident or um, the Irish government uh, wanting to try by Biotech companies to the country, but the way it's evolved is, yeah, per capita, Ireland has the, the highest has had the highest rate of Botox testing now, probably for about a decade, unfortunately. Um, and uh, so, yeah, we you know we feel it's um, it's a, it's a particular stain um, on Ireland's reputation, and we're very concerned that the, the government just seems to have such a laissez faire att- attitude towards it. So they're doing very little to encourage. That some of the companies have developed a human cell-based uh, test to replace the animals. Um, but the, because of commercial confidentiality, there's, there's no incentive for company a to share that life-saving technology with company b so you have years and years and years where company b has to spend millions of pounds themselves to develop the alternative test whereas if there was just a bit of cooperation it would save time and tens of thousands of animals lives so yes it's a frustrating and disturbing situation for us
3: okay mice rats pigs and sheep were used in lab testing mice being the most predominantly used one uh, involved mm-hmm. in more than seventy percent of tests. Someone told me up to ninety thousand animals were killed last year here, in in be, because of lab tests. Yeah, that's correct. So those are the official figures collated and published by the uh, the Health
11: Products Regulatory Authority, um, and these are so these are tests um, where the the. They are likely to cause pain, suffering, and distress to animals. So you only need a licence to do animal tests if there is this likelihood of pain and suffering. So yeah, it's ninety thousand, and I mean it's come down a bit um, over the last few years, which is uh, a partial relief. But one of the things is is that um, you know, European law and the Irish government they claim that they are committed to uh, reducing animal tests. But then, in the in HPRA's own commentary in this for these statistics, they're saying that they had no control over the numbers. So, if another company comes into Ireland next year and they want to do a test a load of botox on animals they're just going to be allowed to do it so that's what, i mean the government is kind of effectively washing its hands of this extreme animal cruelty rather than you know taking it seriously and being proactive and there's a lot of quite easy things that they could do to to really um cut down and start reducing the, the suffering of these animals but it's yeah. yeah they're just it is just disinterested which is really really um Frustrating to say the least. Okay,
3: we're going to have listeners for whom one mouse, one pig, one sheep, or one rat is too much uh, to kill. We're going to have listeners to say that okay, I, I accept a certain mm. number of uh, animals need to have products tested on them. Uh, I would prefer if that would be for the eradication of poli- polio, perhaps, or just make a, an analogy and an example, mm. or perhaps uh, you know, cancer research etc. There are those who won't give a hoot how many animals uh, are used this year and how many die Uh, but I Mm. I think many if not all of uh, our our listeners will say there has to be a a differentiation made between testing on animals for cosmetic purposes Mm. as against for life-saving purposes
11: Mm, Yeah absolutely and the the way the law is set out is supposed to do that because you can only get a a licence to do animal tests if your proposal passes what's called a harm-benefit assessment. Now, you know, setting aside, I mean, there, there are sort of technical issues with animal experiments and the, the vast majority of drugs that pass the animal uh, experimentation and testing phase then fail when they're tried on humans. So there is a, an issue about it being not a very good guide to human disease and human reactions. But, you know, setting that aside, um, you know, the government is supposed to assess each proposal carefully. Now, what's happening with um uh, botulinum toxin is that the companies obtained the license to do the animal tests by claiming that the botox is only going to be used for medical purposes okay, oh, okay. and in fact the, ma- the majority of um, the Botox produced and tested in not just in Ireland but globally is actually destined for a cosmetic purpose. It's not, you know, it's not to help anyone's health or protect them, it's purely for an aesthetic purpose. Now Obviously, that's, that's quite trivial, and one of the reasons why there's been a ban on cosmetic testing on animals for a number of years now is because, quite rightly, the, the, the public think that it's not worth poisoning animals just for the sake of a slightly better skin cream or something, and yet here but you 've got basically the same moral equation, and yet the companies of the government are kind of working together to use this administrative loophole to basically do you know cosmetic tests on animals and it 's not, it's not even just the usual kind of skin um, uh, irritation tests that kind of thing where the effects are, are, are milder, but you know these these lethal paralyzing tests it's, so it 's it's, it's compounding the uh, the, the moral hazard that we've got here and, you know, the very, at the very least the, company, the government should be kind of honest and straightforward in how it's assessing these animal tests and and force the companies I mean, the companies aren't just producing batches of Botox without having a clue whether it's destined for uh, a medical market or cosmetic market you Sure, know, and, and the, know there's, a, there's a couple
3: of ways they're getting around it here and I'm just thinking of the poor animals who have three or four days slowly dying from mm. paralysis, impaired vision, mm. and, and then essentially suffocating. But because the mm. uh, products are being injected into them, rather than put on the mm. animal skin, that kind of evades mm. the European definition of com- cosmetics. So they're very clever about the whole yeah. thing. Can I ask you, though, how come, yeah. how come the world's supply of Botox, BT, is manufactured mm. at one factory in Westport? How does that supply the world?
11: Um, I don't think it surprised the world. It's, it surprised perhaps a large proportion of the Irish and perhaps the UK and European market. But it, you know, it's happening everywhere. It just happens on a on a, on a larger proportionate scale in Ireland at the moment than, than other places. But uh, you know, this is a this is a global problem, and you know, unfortunately, most governments don't give them that much consideration to. Um, stopping animal cruelty and the the, the, the the commercial pressures and the power of these companies has far more influence over governments generally. Um, it's just the situation in Ireland is particularly acute because of the numbers and the, and the fact that it's, it'd be you know just being a bit more honest about um, the, the process where the the botox is identified for its use. Um, you know that, that could that could save sure. probably thirty thousand animals. Um, a year at the moment. All right, Dan. Listen, I can
3: only thank you for highlighting it. I'm not sure if you can stop it, but honesty versus profit, I know who's going to win. But thank you anyway. Uh, Dan Lyons, policy consultant with the Irish Anti-Vivisection Society. Thanks, Dan, and good morning to you. One final Um, shout-out this morning, the 83rd commemoration of the SS Ardmore vessel is on tomorrow at 2pm at Michael Collins Bridge. The Lord Mayor, Cove Animation Team and the Butter Exchange Band are all going to be in attendance. You want to go along? The 83rd commemoration of the SS Ardmore vessel on tomorrow 2pm at Michael Collins Bridge. My thanks to the Neil Prendeville Show production team which is Seamus Wheelahan, Kevin Galvin, and Claire O'Connor and we're back tomorrow.
0: When court talks, car people blow my mind. They talk to Neil Prendeville
3: on Red FM.